The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. They let us play with all our toys. They let us think that we're big boys. They let us make a lot of noise but we're in the world. They let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Space Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. 
Good evening and welcome to a new week on Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott, and it's good to have you along for the ride on this Monday, May 1st, Tuesday, May 2nd. If you're on the East Coast, remember you only have 23 shopping days until my birthday, at least if you're on the West Coast, 22 if you're on the East. Hope you had a good day. We are live right here at Uncle Jimbo's Cabin, right here in the Great White North, as we are live here seven days a week. We welcome in everyone listening in on our terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99, Rock the Key, down in Newton, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. We are also live as well on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We love being live on our website, spacedoutradio.com, on Spreaker, KTLK, the first Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio in Las Vegas, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. All of our theme music is provided by Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. You can follow us all over social media on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, you can follow me at Dave Scott, SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. And of course, our website is SpacedOutRadio.com. And if you head over to Patreon.com, for as low as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of Spaced Out Radio. Now, if you want to take part in this show, you got to do me a favor and our guest a favor. you got to sign into one of the chat rooms because we do not take phone calls around here. You can go to clicking by clicking Listen Live at SpacedOutRadio.com on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on Facebook at the SOR Space Travelers Club. Or if you go on to Twitter, just use the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. I'll get to your questions and comments in there as well. If you head to our website for just 5 bucks a month, you can become a member of the SOR Space Travelers Club. We also have a great news section called The Encounter Online, dealing with everything paranormal and strange, courtesy of our editors, Eric Markham and Everett Themer. You can find my latest blog in there as well. And if you've had an experience you can't explain, fill out an SOR Sightlines report. Researcher Mike Smith is ready to find out what's going on. During the 1970s and 80s, young women with long, feathered hair were told to be on the lookout. There was someone who was looking to kill them, to put it bluntly. From Washington State to Florida, there was fear everywhere that a serial killer was on the loose. What the police knew was that the suspect had dark hair and drove a VW Beetle. What police didn't know was who it was. The terror of the time caused by serial killer Ted Bundy ended a lot of innocence in the United States as the end of his spree, more than 30 women were dead at his sick, malicious hands. The man was either a complete psychopath or an absolute genius with how he was able to keep track and his record so clean that not a single weapon or fingerprint linking him to the murders was ever found. 
Kevin M. Sullivan is a minister by trade and a true crime writer by night. The fascination with a case like Ted Budney's was extraordinary because many people felt there was something more sinister about his motives that led to the rash of killings. Was he possessed? Was it some sort of supernatural demon controlling him? Now, that's not what his book is about. The Trail of Ted Bundy Digging Up the Untold Stories. But it's an excellent example of what happens when someone is uncontrollable by their bloodlust of killing people. Kevin Sullivan, welcome to Spaced Out Radio tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Glad to be on the show. And uh, I always enjoy talking about the uh, subject of Ted Bundy because it's a... uh, fascinating case and it's a very in-depth case and uh, in fact i've written three books on it i just closed out the trilogy of of the ted bundy murders with uh my last book it's called the bundy secrets my first book was the bundy murders a comprehensive history and the trail of ted bundy was actually the middle book but now the trilogy is done and uh i'm on I'm, i'm i'm on to other things in in true crime but it's been quite a journey now i do need to know how does a church minister write true crime about serial killers? To me, my friend, when you told me that you were a minister beforehand, it blew my mind because I just don't understand how you correlate the two professions. Yes, there's something wrong with this picture. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, Well, my father was an attorney, and he had a pretty vast library. And I, I remember when I was 10 years old, I pulled a book off the shelf, and the title of the book was The World's Worst Murders by Charles Franklin. He's an English writer. And this is 1965. I was 10. And that was the first adult book that I had read. I read it in about three weeks. And um, I was fascinated by it. It was very interesting. And, uh, and from that moment on, I was reading things about crime or history or war and that's how I grew up. But when I became an adult, I, although I still read about those things, I became a Christian and I went into the ministry and uh, I was ordained in 1984. Uh, so I'm still functioning today as the uh, pastor of a church and I have a counseling service and um, I do that. But I also write books. I, I just finished. I'm just finishing, I think, my 13th book now. Most of what I write is true crime. But I do write history as well. I've written a couple of books on George Armstrong Custer, and uh, so you know it's uh, it's. I, I just had this writing bug. I wanted to write, and and I, and so that, a long time ago, that's what I did. But I stumbled on the Ted Bundy thing. But uh, I know when people, I tell people I'm a minister. It's like a, I have. I'm a man with feet in both worlds, and usually those worlds don't cross. People are either in the ministry or they're writers of true, and even writers. Some ministers are writers, but they're usually writing about church history or something like that. I don't really write that, but but I do write the true crime and the history. So I, I think I'm a little bit of a rare breed like that, but most people that know me understand why I do it. So <laughs> so they don't look at, at, at me strangely for too long. So that's good. <laughs> Did you ever see yourself as a true crime writer when you decided that you wanted to start writing books? No, I actually, actually, no. I'll tell you what happened. I got really interested in Custer and I wanted to write a personality study of him. And I thought, I think I'll do the research. I'll act like I'm a writer. I'll go ahead and just do it. And I think I'll write a book. And I did. I wrote a brief book, uh, about 125 pages or something on 
George Armstrong Custer, not a biography, but the, but, but a personality study of him. And, uh, and it sold and, um, it's still in some even 50 libraries. Uh, today, that book was called Shattering the Myth, Signposts on Custer's Road to Disaster. I thought I'd write it and I'd get that writing thing out of my system, but I didn't. And uh, I just hungered to do more. So I was doing the ministry and I was also writing. And the interesting thing about Ted Bundy is I, I never, I never had any intention of writing, even though I was writing true crime already. Um, I never had any intention of writing about Bundy, but a friend of mine, his name is James Massey. He's, he's passed on now, but he was a probation and parole officer here in Kentucky for uh, many years. And he was good friends with a fellow out of Utah, a uh, retired homicide investigator by the name of Jerry Thompson. And Jerry Thompson was the lead investigator uh, for the Bundy case in Utah. And occasionally, Jim and I would talk about the Bundy case. I hadn't read any books about it, but I'd watch some documentaries. And, and, and so Jim and I would talk, and he told me, he said that he'd been friends with Jerry for, since the, back in the 1980s. And he, said, talk, he told me one day, he said, you know, Jerry has Bundy's murder kit or a part of it. And um, I said, really? He said, yeah, because he lost all that stuff in Utah. And then after Ted was put to death in Florida, it just kind of went into his hands and he uses it for like teaching seminars for law enforcement and things like that. I said, well, that's very, very interesting. Well, I got a call from Jim one day back in 2005 and uh, he said, uh, the Thompsons are coming to Louisville um, uh, in May. Would you like to have dinner, you know, you know, with, with us? I said, well, that would be great. And I thought that would be something nice to do. At the time, I, w I had been submitting some articles. I was writing a lot about some Kentucky true crime cases, and I would submit articles occasionally to uh, a paper called Snitch. It was a weekly print newspaper that was published in five states at the time, but it, but it originated here, here in Louisville. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe meeting Thompson, I, I might knock an article out about that, okay? But uh, on the day that the Thompsons got to Louisville, it, it was a Sunday, Jim called me. And he said uh, he was going to tell me where I should meet them to eat at the, the restaurant. That we were, I didn't know where they were going to eat. He, he said, I'll call you and I'll let you know. So we did. And I thought that's all he was going to say. And I was about to say, okay, that's great. I'll see you in a minute. He said he brought the bag. And I said, what bag? He said, the bag Ted Bundy carried. And I said, oh. Oh, I said, well, you, and I remembered that that, that would be that murder kit he had. And I said, well, you've got to, um, meet me a few minutes before the Thompsons show up because uh, I'd like to see the bag because when Jerry came in town, he just turned the bag over to Jim. They were in Louisville for a couple of days. He said, you just take the bag and it shows your friends at work. So he met me up there and uh, the murder kit consists of anybody that has read my book, The Bundy Murders, Comprehensive History. I got a picture of that stuff laid out on my dining room table. But, uh, it, it, you know, it, 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 it was like a gym bag. It's got rope in there. It's got an electrical cord, uh, an ice pick, uh, strips of sheet that were torn so he could bind hands and feet, a ski mask, uh, and everything in his murder kit Jerry has. There's only three items missing. Uh, the crowbar, which is in the Utah court system, probably with the family of Judge Hanson who passed away, I think, last year or the year before, and, and the handcuffs. I think Hanson, the judge, had those. And Jerry Thompson had carried the... Uh, the uh, pantyhose mask of Florida uh, 
when he went down there uh, during that trial because he thought that they might need it. I don't think that ever came back. But he's got really almost the entire kit. So not only did I get a chance to see this kit, but the next night I called Jim. I said, could I bring that over to my house to photograph it? He said, sure, and I went and picked it up. It was the most surreal experience for me to be driving at night through the streets of Louisville. And there's this murder kit sitting in the passenger seat. And I thought to myself, this is exactly how it's set in Bundy's passenger seat or behind him on the floor or wherever. And, um, I, and nobody's with me. It's like it should be in a museum, but it's in my car. I take it to my house. I lay it all out. My wife is sorry I brought the thing into the house, but that's just the way it is sometimes. And uh, so, I, you know, we photograph it. And then I give the bag back. And before Jerry and his wife leaves, the day after that, um, he gave me and he gave Jim one of the green glad uh, garbage bags that Bundy carried in his murder kit in the uh, glad box. And what he would use these bags for, all of his victims were found nude. He would always remove everything, but he would sometimes leave like a beaded necklace on them. He would put everything else into one of these garbage bags and dump them somewhere down the road in a dumpster or something away from where he leaves the body. So he gives me this. I said, Jerry, could you write me a letter of authentication? And he did. And, he, and so uh, I made a copy and gave you know, the letter to Jim also. And it was so surreal having this that, yeah, I, I knocked out an article for Snitch, uh, uh, you know, I think it was the title Three Days with Ted Bundy and had a picture of the kit and everything. But it was so surreal that I got a hunger to write about this, you know, this guy. And, and I thought, I know there's a, a number of books that have been published by him, but I just feel like I should do it. And I remember several people told me, said, you know, Bundy's been done to death. You need to write about you know something else. And I said, "Well, I feel like I'll go this way. I'm going to go this way," and I did. And I was so happy I did because when I was about halfway through the book, I was discovering new information that had never been published about four of the murders, and a lot of new information, just general stuff, uh, having to do with the case in general. And it was the way I wrote it also that was different from some of the earlier books. So I knew I could write a book that would be a good addition to what's out there on Bundy. I didn't know, and no one knows, no writer knows when they start out, if they're going to write something that, that might by chance stand apart from the others in some degrees. And, and so that's what, that's what I ended up doing. It was just a, a lot of different things about that book. And it was really, really uh, I really turned up some good information. So, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to sell it to a publisher, uh, even without the help of an agent. Uh, within about three weeks of, of uh, submitting it, I submitted uh, six things to six different you know publishers, and the one signed me, and then another one contacted me a number of days after this one signed me, and uh, they were interested in in signing me, but I told them I had already signed somebody else. So the acquisition editors were recognizing immediately that there was a uniqueness to this book. So that just goes to show you sometimes in life, you got to do what you know you need to do uh, rather than go along with the crowd. So 
I did the right thing. I was glad I did. But that, that, this whole thing that happened with Bundy, I would have never written one word about him. And, and, and meeting Jerry was interesting, and that would have produced an article. But without having that, that glad bag and without having that, that surreal moment like that, there's no way I would have taken that challenge on. And, you know, it's, it, it was a good two and a half years of my life. It was day and night. It was weekends. It was everything. But it paid off because that, it, it's been a good-selling book for me, and, and it still is that way. And that's, like I say, the, the first one is the in-depth biography. That's the Bundy Murders of Comprehensive History. And that was published in uh, August of 2009. And then uh, I wrote the second book, The Trail of Ted Bundy, in 2015 as a companion volume. And then in 20, uh, uh, well, it was released in 2016. So in, in 2016, I wrote The Bundy Secrets, which finishes the trilogy, and that came out uh, in uh, 2017. But it all happened kind of like just by chance. That's funny how life will do that to you sometimes. It kind of drops in your lap. Something will drop in your lap, and it'll upset the apple cart, but it'll do it in a good way. And it directed my life in a literary literary sense in a way that I I never thought it would. And it was the Bundy murders that put me on the map in true crime. That's what got me known with a lot of people. So it's, it's, it's worked out well for me. Kevin, one of the things I'm very interested in is nearly 38 or 30 years after the execution of Ted Bundy, you're still finding new information on this. How is that even possible? Well, it's interesting. Um, For the Bundy murders, the kind of stuff I was uncovering um, that had to do with the murders, some of that and I'll tell you a story just on uh, that in, in just a second. But some of that happened because the detectives were more willing to talk now than they were years ago. And they trusted me, and I've gained a very good reputation. Uh, and people will, will check on me occasionally uh, of doing exactly what I say I will do with people that help me on books. So they get back with me, they work with me, they're happy with me, and I've never betrayed their trust. So some people opened up with me that hadn't quite opened up uh, as readily with other people prior to that time. That's part of it. And another part of it was just simply my refusal to stop digging for information when I kept hitting brick walls. And a good example of that would be, it was really strange because sometimes you'll come upon something and you will go, huh, I wonder if I'm right about it. And And here's what happens. I wrote the book sequentially, and I was gathering case files from all the uh, respective states at basically one time. But uh, I started writing about the murders in Washington State. Finally, when I was getting close to writing about the Idaho murders, there was a girl there I was going to write about, and her name is Lynette Culver. She's a 12-year-old girl that Bundy picked up from the uh, Holiday Inn in Pocatello, Idaho, took back to his hotel room, and murdered. Okay, And... I, I, I was I was on good terms with Bill Hagmeyer. If anybody knows the Bundy story well, first of all, I worked with all the detect all the lead detectives in the case from all around the states. There's a couple I didn't get, but I got all the main ones, and and so that was good. But also, Bill Hagmeyer was kind of kind enough to deal with me, and we've had two or three very long phone conversations. And he was the guy that worked out at Quantico and was in the behavioral science uh, you know unit. And so I called Bill one day and I said, and I have to say this first, 
Bill Hagmeyer sat in. He became a friend of Bundy's, quote, friend, unquote, for the last couple of years of Ted's life so that he could gain information. And it was smart to do so. Ted trusted him. Ted liked him. Hagmeyer liked him, but he, Hagmeyer also knew what he was dealing with. But they had a rapport, and he got information from him. So Bundy originally wanted to confess all of his murders to Hagmeyer. Well, Bill said, that can't happen, Ted, because you, you're going to have to confess to the detectives from the respective states who have missing and murdered women because they know the cases and you have the information. So he, I mean, you know, and Bundy said, well, okay, that sounds right. He said, but I will sit in on every confession you make. And so Bundy was satisfied. So I called Bill one day and here's what I say to Bill. I say, Bill, there's, I had the name of a girl. I, I just have her name and the manner in which she was murdered. And that's all I had because I said I haven't yet received a case file. I said her name is Lynette Culver. And apparently Bundy drowned her in the bathtub at the Holiday Inn. And he said, well, Kevin, he said, I, I sat in with every confession Bundy ever made. And I've never heard that before. And uh, I said, oh, okay. I said, uh, he said, I have a lot of respect for the detective who gave you that information. And that information came from Mike Fisher, the investigator out of Colorado. Now, this is in Idaho. So I got it from Mike. So Bill Hagmar is telling me this. And I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Mike's wrong. I couldn't see where Mike would be wrong. I said, somebody's wrong. And so I'm the novice. He's the expert. I'm just learning. I'm researching. I'm writing, but I'm, I'm kind of like the new kid on the block with this thing. And I said, well, listen, Bill. I said, um, and he said to me, he said, now, I said, I'm going to go back and check. He said, if you find out any more on it, let me know. He said, but I, and he said, you do know that Bundy's preferred method for murder was having sex with his victims from behind while strangling them to death. I said, yes, Bill. I, I, I'm aware of that. Now, at the time, when I heard about her getting drowned in the bathtub, I mean, the M.O. of it, I knew it was different, but it didn't really hit me. And I didn't know there was a problem with that. So I went back to Mike Fisher. I called him. He said, oh, yeah. He said, that's true. He said, I got that from the Idaho investigator, Russ Renault, when we were all down there. So I called Russ. I had to track him down. And uh, I called Russ. And he was real. All these investigators are great, by the way. They all worked with me. They're, they're all, they were all really dedicated investigators. They all remind me of each other. That's, that's the type of, uh, you know, dedication they have. Anyway, so he said, yes, he said, that's true. He did drown her in the bathtub. And here's why Bill doesn't know it. He said, we were having, a, a, we only had one hour with Bundy. And we were trying to clear up two cases. We were trying uh, of any case in the state where he might be involved with. And so Bundy had two. One was, you know, Lynette Culver, which was obvious. And the second one was an Idaho hitchhiker that Bundy had murdered. Now, so Russ told me, he said, we only had an hour. And, and I've got the transcript and I can see what he means. They kind of bounced back and forth between the two murders, getting as much information as they could. And at one point, um, when they mentioned manner of death for Culver, he said drowning. But because he had said he had put her in the river, 
in a river five miles north of Pocatello, which I think is the Snake River, I, I think in their mind they assumed that's how the kid drowned. And it, it was just back. It was very quick-paced, all these questions. But as they were leaving the prison, um, Renault said to his co-investigator, Randy Everett, he said, you know, Bundy never did say exactly uh, how he drowned her. Why don't you try to see if you can get back into the prison and have a meeting with him, just a short one. And, uh, and Bundy did say at the end of the thing, and it's on the transcript, I know this isn't enough time. If you have any more questions that you need answered, I'll, you know, I'll try to help you out on that. So Randy Everett goes back into the prison and unbelievably they let him in. It's not a scheduled thing. Now keep in mind, every confession is scheduled. Every confession has Bundy's attorney there. Every confession has Hagmeyer there, but they take Bundy back to this. Uh, they take uh, Randy back to the room and they call uh, and they, they call for Bundy about 15, 20 minutes later, Bundy comes in, sits down. So they talk for a second and, Everett said to him, he said, you never told us exactly how you drowned her. And he said, oh, well, I drowned her in the bathtub, in, you know, in, in, the, in the hotel room. And then he admitted to having sex with her afterwards because, you know, he was a, he, you know, he is a necrophile. He was a necrophile. I mean, he would have sex prior to the death. He would, like, rape them. It, almost always sex during the actual strangulation. But believe me, he was a necrophile, and, and, and he admitted to it. Anyway. He said, that's why Bill, that's why Bill Hagmark doesn't know it. So Everett, so I, so when Russ told me this, I, I had to call Everett and I got the, like the minute by minute account of, uh, account of everything they talked about. So then at that point, I went ahead and emailed Bill Hagmar back. And in fact, in my um, book, The Trail of Ted Bundy, I actually talk about this and how this came about. And I put that uh, portion of the email in the book, because it's a very interesting thing. So it was those types of things. So here, here am I, a novice at the time, just trying to write a book, having information that even the expert, Bill Hegmar, didn't have. And it was weird things like this that kept cropping up. And so it was just very interesting to uncover stuff. And I've always been a good researcher with stuff, and I don't give up, and I just kind of keep once in a while, I will hit a dead end in my research where I can't figure out how to get to something. But then maybe I know somebody who can help me. And that's, that's how I usually get to that source anyway. But anyway, so that's how that worked out. And uh, as far as what you can find out now, the next two books, uh, the second and third book, there's always people out there that haven't been interviewed. And I was really, really fortunate. And I seem to almost always be fortunate to either be able to track people down or they contact me after my books are published. And sometimes when the people contact me, then they have names of other people. And for the last book, The Bundy Secrets, I've got an unbelievable story in there about a lady named Louise Cannon who worked at a bank who Bundy tried to get to know and they went and had coffee together and he would see her all the time in the bank and he liked her. And she's got a real story about that. And outside of talking to the cops about it way back then, uh, no, no writers ever interviewed her. So when it showed up in the Bundy secrets, that's the first time that's ever been published. And most of the people I've dragged down have never been published before. The, the, the Mormon folks, 
had never been interviewed by people and published like they were with me for the trail of, of, you know, Ted Bundy. And I just think that's because when I get to meet people, people open up to me and then other people vouch for me if they check on me. And so I'm able to come up with new information sources that have never been published before uh, or, or, or if they had, there might be a little squib or something about it, but they don't go really in, in depth, you know, with it. So I, I've been able to do this and get that kind of information. And I'm not going to write ever another book on Ted Bundy. I mean, after 600 plus pages, I'm done. But if I wanted to go out there and start searching for additional testimonies, yeah, I could find them. And, you know, with these books out there, at any moment, I could be contacted by somebody else. Now, I may write an article, do some kind of op-ed or something. I don't know. Or I could write it for my publisher. I could do something where I would write an article and incorporate it. But as far as writing another book, I think three is enough with Ted Bundy. Now, there is always some sort of information that always comes out after the case, much like mm-hmm. you were able to read about. But we got to go way back in this to find out who yeah. Ted Bundy was. This was a person who had yep. a very troubled childhood. He always yeah. seemed yeah. angry, always had a little bit of sinister attitude inside of him. Break down who Ted Bundy yeah. was for us. Well, I say in the Bundy murders, and this is true, and I guess some people don't want to hear this, but but it's true. It's true nevertheless. Um, before anybody became a victim of Ted Bundy, he was a victim himself of his own circumstances. I've been to his house. Um, I've been I've looked in the backyard, front yard, people there, the only house down there I could come in. I declined. I should have gone in, but I stood there and I visualized it, and I thought, you know, there's a little boy he played here. And I guarantee you, if you'd have run into Ted Bundy as a little boy, he had a lot of good qualities. He was probably considered a sweet kid. He looks like a sweet kid in a number of his pictures. But he grew up a damaged soul. And there was something wrong on the inside. And it would show up as a little boy. It would show up to his aunts um, back east in, in Pennsylvania. But those were things that he dealt with. He was not a predator. But you can see things in his early years where even though on the outside, Bundy would try to act like suave and, 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 you know, like he had everything together. The very insecure person, insecure with girls. He had a damaged aspect in his personality where he didn't feel like, and this is the psychopathy, this is the um, oh, the blooming, if you are, of the psychopath. Now, you can have problems in this area, lack of compassion, lack of things. Or, but you know, there were he cared about members of his family, and he had a lot of good traits with him when he was young. But as he started to form as an adult, he had some strange things happen to him as a kid. For example, with his aunts in Pennsylvania, when he was just like three or four, he had put, uh, aunt was sleeping on the bed, he had put, taken kitchen knives and razor covers and put them in around her, pointing at her, and she woke up and stared at him. And, you know, he, he was kind of in a, in a daze. He wasn't doing anything to her, but that speaks of a serious psychological problem. 
And you know, that occurred. That was strange. The aunt, the sisters thought it was strange. Um, and then he did something else one day. He was waiting with either that aunt or another aunt uh, on a platform, on a train platform. Uh, and uh, it was at dusk. And she said that his personality kind of right in front of her morphed into something else. And it frightened her. And it's too bad she didn't elaborate more because I would have liked to have known what he did. I would have liked to have known what she saw and what occurred. But she just said it frightened her. Now, you can't really blame the little boy for that. He's real little. But that something's wrong, you know, we know that's true and it's there. But whatever was in Bundy and whatever was, was wrong with Bundy, uh, until he went down this predatory aspect of his life. It's one thing to be dealing with problems and feeling like you lack compassion and you don't know what's wrong with you and you don't feel like, you don't think you feel like you should. That's one way to live and that's not good. You need help. But it's a big difference from that than opening the door to hideous fantasies of what you're going to do with women and then willingly walking down that road. Then you become a predator. And there's no compassion should be extended to you. But as a child, yes, compassion. So a lot of people think, well, he's just a monster. And they think he was a monster all his life. That's not true. Uh, so in his yard, I thought about him playing as a kid. As my kids used to play when they were that age. And I'm thinking, just an innocent kid. Isn't it a shame he couldn't have gotten some help? Because it would not only have helped him, it would have spared these women who would have been alive, most of them today, with grandchildren. But anyway, so yeah, we don't know why his personality became what it was. And I know later on you want to talk about some other factors that would have energized Bundy in what he did. But even they weren't the, the start of it. So yeah, we don't know why. It's a mystery. It's one of the mysteries of the Bundy case as to why he became what he did. We know what he did. But there's things about what he did that we don't know. There's still some mystery there. But there's a tremendous amount we do know. And so we have a, we, we have somebody that was just very, and could be very diabolical, but he wasn't that way as a child. And, and that, that's what kind of creates a disconnect in some people. One of my listeners, Canadian Joe at hashtag spaced out radio on Twitter posted pictures of 20 of his victims and, you know, beautiful, uh -huh. beautiful young ladies, you know, their hair was oh, yeah. all the same parted in the middle, long hair, you know, mm -hmm. just gorgeous yep. young ladies with with a lot of future ahead of them. And yet this yep. animal, if we can call him that, you know, decides right. to take them early. Did we ever find out why he felt the need or the urge to kill women? You know, that's a... No, no, there's not... That's the thing that... That, that's what we don't know. Now, all he would say is that, you know, you know, he talked to his girlfriend, Liz, Liz uh, you know, Klepfer or Clover or whatever. I, I call her Kendall in my book because she goes by Liz Kendall for her book, you know, Phantom Prince. But she had some conversations with Ted. And Ted said he was preoccupied with this stuff and he tried to get rid of it, but he couldn't. And it was just, it would build up in him and build up in him and, he never sought any help for it. Now, there is a flip side to that. We can't forget the fact 
that he loved doing that. And that's why I say in the Bundy murders, he wasn't a powerless pawn that was taken over by some force and made to do this. That's not how this stuff works. For some reason, and we don't know why, he mixed sexual fantasies with violence. I mean, most people that see pornography, they, there's a lot of negatives to pornography uh, because it can create an addiction. It can devalue your partner. It can create problems, and there's a lot of studies on that. But one thing it doesn't do, and Bundy tried to blame all of this on pornography at the end. It doesn't cause you to slaughter women cut their heads off, and have sex with their dead bodies. That's not what pornography does. Whatever caused Bundy to go off into this very diabolical area was something within Bundy that we don't know about. And he could have been energized by stuff. That's true. But he willingly went down that road. And that's the, that's the odd thing. Why did he start going down that road? Because there was a part of him there was a part of him before 1974. He met Liz Kendall in 1969. It's my personal feeling from studying his life. If Bundy came back today, I could sit him down and I could talk about his life from birth until death and I wouldn't miss a beat and he'd follow me and he'd nod his head. When you write a biography, you spend years writing books about somebody, you get to know them exceedingly well. So, you know, but in the midst of all that we know, we don't know why he went down that road. And I don't think he knows why either. If you'll notice, he majored in psychology, graduated from college. And why was he drawn to psychology? I think ultimately he wanted to find out some things for himself, about himself. But no matter where he was, and, and what he considered, we can never turn away from the fact that he willingly went down that road. And that's the $64,000 question. Why did he do it? I mean, if you, you talk about those women, these weren't women that were out there putting themselves at risk, like through prostitution. And those lives are, are precious. They do, nobody deserves to be slaughtered. But when women do that, they know they're at least taking a risk and they can be on the lookout for it. And they try to find out who's creepy and who's not and who may be a danger to them. But these women that Bundy grabbed, they're just conducting their normal lives. And they're not expecting anybody dangerous to come into their lives. And then here comes this handsome, articulate guy with a, quote, nice, nice resume, unquote. And then they fall victim to him. So strange, isn't it? It's but just, he, yeah. But he played a part. You know, I mean, he had yeah, yeah. a fiance in Seattle, a girlfriend in Utah. He, yes, when he went to find his victims, he always played the lonesome cowboy who was injured. His yes. arm was always in a sling, or his leg yes. was in a cast on crutches. Like he had the perfect motto to lure women in: a good-looking guy needing help. Yes, 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 and, and in fact, if you notice that the thing with Silence of the Lambs where the guy is using the cast. Well, they got that straight out of Ted's script. And um, yeah, he was, the, the, the thing about Bundy is he was an exceedingly good planner of murder. 
when he was in Washington State, and even good in in Colorado and 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 Utah and and those areas. He became a very different killer by the time he got to Florida, but he was really just kind of like out of control. But in 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 his own home state, exceedingly good planner of murder and an exceedingly bold murderer. But yes, he would take it to an extreme, a, a leg cast, arm cast, fumbling with books, <coughs> walking around on crutches, all kinds of stuff to convince these women. And then you add to that, he looks normal. He sounds normal. He's got a good smile. What could be the harm? And so with women disappearing in Washington state, I mean, when George Ann Hawkins, um, went out that, that night, left her sorority house on Greek Road and went out with her girlfriend uh, to a party. Just, you know, they're friends. They're just going to a party. They've, they've been studying and they hit a couple places. They had a couple beers relaxing and she was going to go back and study. Well, she wanted to stop in to see her boyfriend and th- they knew about this killer. And so George Ann, the girl, her girlfriend said, Georgianne waited in the alleyway to make sure I went all the way down and waved I was going in the door. They were trying to be as careful as they could and to protect each other. So so Georgianne Hawkins was completely aware of the danger. She stops and talks to her boyfriend. She goes up into the building on the corner of the fraternity. Uh, Marvin Galatly was her boyfriend at the time. Spends some time with him, comes out the door, the back door. The back door slams. Dwayne Covey, who's up in the window above the door, comes to the window, sees her. I've I've talked to Dwayne. He's a nice guy. Talked to a lot of people that knew Bundy, too. And they're all nice, normal people. And uh, Covey said that we stood there and talked a while. And as they talked, they could hear laughing down in the darkness, down the alley somewhere. Well, that laughter was Bundy. And um, he started to sense an opportunity here. So we got George Ann speaking to Dwayne Covey. She's got to get back and study for her Spanish test. Uh, it's around, it's after 11 p.m. And uh, maybe heading towards midnight. And she's only got like about 50 feet to go, 50, 60 feet. And so she, she says goodbye to Dwayne. She's got to get back and do some studying because he's got the Spanish exam in the morning. The year is almost over. And here comes this, you know, well-dressed guy on crutches dropping a briefcase. So what's George Ann going to do? She's a really nice lady, really sweet girl. Everybody liked her. She just a great person. He needed help. She knows there's a killer out there, but it certainly can't be him. It can't be what I'm seeing. See, this is what, that's the thing about this. You can't always trust what you're seeing. And you can't trust what you're hearing. Very nice guy. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll help. So they go down the alley. They take a right. They go to the corner. They go down a half a block. And I've been to this place. It was, a, at the time, a gravel lot. Now paved with a... They, uh, they got a basketball hoop and net permanently fixed and... It's a paid lot, but it's still a lot. And he goes in there, and she's helping him with the briefcase. And while she's putting the briefcase in his car, he takes the crowbar from behind the, uh, I guess it would be the right rear wheel, whacks her in the head, hits her so hard, she comes out of her, uh, I 
I think both of her shoes and one of the ear rings flies off, gets her in there, and life is over for Georgianne. You know, she would die later on that, that, that evening. But here you got a woman that fell victim to the very killer she was aware was out there. Women were disappearing, but because of what she saw, she just didn't think that that could be him. And that became a real danger. This is why he was so exceedingly dangerous is because he had such a perfect mask and uh, it fooled a lot of people. And in that same case, what I read earlier studying for this, he blended Mm -hmm. in so well. He was a master of deception that he could blend in anywhere that while a number of hours later, while it's blocked off as a crime scene, he wiggled Mm -hmm. his way in there with police all around and picked up the shoes and the earrings and disappeared with them. Yeah, well, he did a smart thing from his perspective. He didn't dare take his car. He, 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 he rode a bicycle in and he said he passed through the cops and the people. And there were lots of people out there and, and they were watching the investigation. And you see some looks like a college person just riding a bike going through. You, you don't think anything. What was interesting is that um, uh, he the, the, the parking lot is like a block down the street. And currently the investigation was focusing along Greek Row, which is the alleyway behind the, uh, you know, fraternity and, and sorority houses. So they were very close to Bundy, but he went back in the parking lot. He, I guess it was one shoe and, or it could have been both. I, yeah, I think maybe both shoes. I can't, I have to check my book. I can't remember. But, and then, and then he found the earring. So yeah, he gathered those up and off he went and nobody was the wiser. Now, if she'd have lost that in the alleyway, of course, he didn't hit her there. If she'd lost anything there, he, I mean, that would have been impossible because they were down there. And they would have already had it, too. But it was just a, a stroke of luck on his part. But you got to remember, Bundy was a very bold killer. I have never, some of the abductions that he's made were so bold, like the, the uh, taking of Linda Ann Healy out of her uh, uh basement apartment that she shared with other uh, co-eds on, I think, 12th Street in the university district. I think five girls lived there. And in the basement, two women, Linda Ann Healy and another one, they were only separated. Their rooms were separated by a partition of plywood. And Bundy comes in there. Just think about that. There's another woman sleeping right there, right? He comes in in the middle of the night. The front door is unlocked. they had somebody at the residence lost the keys. They would leave the door open for any residents coming in without keys. We're going to have keys replaced, but they didn't yet. So the house was unlocked. He came in. He comes down there. I, they don't know whether he was after Linda Ann Healy specifically for her. He may have been, he may not have been, or it may be that he was just after uh, uh, just a girl and he didn't choose the other one. But in any event, he goes into a room, and you could make any noise. You never know if this girl is going to hear it next door. He knows somebody's in there. He throttles her. He chokes her into uh, unconsciousness. She's already asleep, but she awakened, and then he, you know, she passed out because of that. Healy got a nosebleed. She bled on her nightgown. And so you would think, you know, if you and I were abductors, we'd get out of there as quickly as possible. No, he doesn't. It takes his time. He takes the nightgown off of her. He hangs it up in her closet. He must have moved her on the floor or onto a chair. He made her bed military style. 
she never made her bed during the week because she had to be up so early because she was a ski report announcer at the local radio station. And, you know, radio station, you had to be there like 6 a.m. or something, 6.30. So he never made her bed. So it's made military style. He then, he must have covered her in a blanket. He then grabbed a uh, little backpack or something, put some clothes in there. And he whisked her, he goes up, and I've been to this house. He goes up um, the, he doesn't, he doesn't go by way of the front door again. He goes up uh, to the um, basement and comes out on the side of the uh, house, which the door that opens up on the side, it's closer to the front entrance than to the rear. But he's got two choices at that point, and we don't know what he did. His car was either parked in the alleyway or it was parked on 12th Street in front. Either way, he could have very easily been seen. It is a university district. It is in the middle of the night, but as you know, university districts can have people out. Cars are out. I mean, it's not like it, it's completely deserted. And if he went down the front way, he's got these steep steps he's got to go down. And if he went out the back way, then uh, he could have gotten out of the gate or something to his car. But like I say, the, uh, the alley itself was so narrow that if he would have parked there, he would have effectively blocked the alley. And of course, if a, if a Seattle, you know, a p- patrol car came by, uh, you know, they probably would have sighted them. And how would that look if he came out with a woman over his shoulder? In any event, he would take these extraordinary risks, the kind of risks that you wouldn't think a normal person would think, if you're going to abduct somebody, you don't want to do that. And he made these strange kind of, he did these strange things a number of times. So if we could say anything about Bundy is you could never put him in the proverbial box. And you could never say there's no way he wouldn't do that because I've never found anything that, that, that would tell me that he wouldn't try something if he felt like he had the confidence to try it. So he was a very, this is one of the things that caused Bundy to be why people are fascinated with him. It's his looks, it's his intelligence, it's his diabolical secret life. It's how bold he was in a killer. It's everything. And uh, this is why people are, I think, I think Bundy, is going to have, because he's not lost any of his interest. People just are interested in this case. I think he's going to end up being America's Jack the Ripper, where in England, no, no one really knows. These books come out saying this one was Jack. No, nobody knows. But he gained a mystique, Jack the Ripper, that they're still writing books about him. I think in 100 years, they'll still be writing books about Ted when many other killers will be forgotten. There's a uniqueness about him and a strangeness about him that, as far as I'm concerned, it exceeds many other killers. We have about 90 seconds before we need to go to our first break of the night, Kevin. Uh, author Kevin M. Sullivan okay. is our guest tonight. Mm-hmm. Is he a psychopath, or he is he absolutely brilliant of a human being? He's actually both. He's, he, he's both. Um, he was a psychopath, and he was... He was smart. In one way, he was very smart in planning murder. In other ways, he was kind of dumb, thinking he could play the, the legal system, and he made some terrible, terrible mistakes there, and it cost him. But as far as being an abductor and planner of murder, I had a guy say to me once, he said, well, he was so good at it, he must have had a partner. And I said, there's no way that Bundy would have shared that life with anybody else. He was a solitary predator. He was... He was like a shark. I speak about this in Florida, 
where a shark just moves through the ocean searching for food. All he was concerned about was moving through oceans of people to seek out victims. By the time he got to Florida, nobody, no family, no friends, nothing, just murder. And so that's the way he was. He's just a strange, strange man. Very incredible indeed. You're listening to Space Out Radio tonight. We are talking with author Kevin M. Sullivan. He has written a trilogy on the deceased serial killer Ted Bundy. It's an incredible story indeed. We're going to have Kevin for one more hour after this. You're listening to Space Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott. We'll be back. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. The third Monday of every month, Spaced Out Radio is going to bring you a different look at everything paranormal. Welcome to The Reporters. Jim Mallard, Vanessa Hogel, Denise Garcia, and Christina George join me, Dave Scott, for a look at the weird and strange from the other side of the microphone. We'll break down ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and the people investigating them. The paranormal media has never been heard like this. Come listen to The Reporters. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy in your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sightlines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at 
purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passports. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I... Vincent Zunza and my super sleuth partner Alexandra Sullivan track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest, from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up. Enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to the second hour of Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us tomorrow night on the program. Donald R. Young is going to join us. We're going to talk about the strange outdoors. We're going to talk about everything from Bigfoot to Dogman and everything creepy crawly running around the forest as we get into a little bit of the cryptid world. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern Time at SpaceOutRadio.com. We want to welcome in our terrestrial radio stations right now. The W... 
QEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia. Good to have you with us. We are also live on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you with us. We're also live in Las Vegas on KTLK. Make that the Renegade Talk Radio. We're live on KTLK, the Fringe FM. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Wow, Decian. Wow, Decian is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, Space Travelers, as Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the show. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Space Out Radio. Use the hashtag Space Out Radio if you want to connect with us live as well during the show. You can give our Facebook page a like, Space Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows from iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player FM, and Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month. You can read up on our news section, The Encounter Online, and if you head over to Patreon.com for as low as a dollar a month, you can be a patron of Spaced Out Radios as well. Tonight we are delving into the sick and twisted mind of serial killer Ted Bundy. Author Kevin M. Sullivan has written a trilogy about the serial killer. Kevin, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. One of the most intriguing parts of this whole case was the fact that many people said that Ted had the ability to almost shapeshift his face and become someone that he wasn't. This leads to Amber's question in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Do you think that this force that you mentioned in hour number one meant that when Ted Bundy told his girlfriend Kendall that the force caused him to do it, that maybe he was possessed? Well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, there's, this is not anything I talk about in my true crime books because that's just another aspect. But when I take off my writer's hat and put on my minister's hat and understand how the supernatural plays a part in this world, Yes, I do think uh, he had what are known as spirits, uh, demonic activity in his life. And he had some supernatural events occur, even in front of some police officers in Florida, and uh, that really freaked them out. And uh, so, and even to the writer, Stephen Michaud, when when Michaud was interviewing him, he uh, he went into a trance and uh, a welt appeared to spread across his cheek and, and it was there while he was in this trance, trance like state and talking. And then it slowly dissipated. Michelle said it came out of nowhere. It was weird, but it happened, uh, when he was with a number of, uh, it might've been some of people on his, uh, attorney team and, uh, some cops were there too, but he was, uh, he, he was in jail in Florida. He was, he was with me meeting with people. And um, somebody came into the room and whispered to someone that they had found the body of Kim Leach. And this one guy that was in there, he said, uh, and it was seen by everybody. So when Bundy heard that, his body tone changed. There was a strange smell emanating from him, not, not like he passed gas. It was something else, something weird. 
and it really bothered those who saw it. And that was uh, what I would call a supernatural event happening because of some other problems in his life. But again, these are not things I talk about uh, in my true crime books because the fact is he committed murder. That's what he did. And whatever was there in, a, in the realm of the spirit to energize Bundy, it was only energizing him in, th- in things he wanted to do. So I keep it on one side of the track. And then when I speak about other things and the world of the demonic and the angelic and things in the world of the spirit, then yes, all those things enter into play. And you'll see that. And like I say to people on occasion, there, there have been murders, murderers who have said that uh, in the midst of murder, while they're killing somebody, they, uh, they say, feel like they're, re- they're retracting into themselves. They they're like receding into themselves. And, uh, you know, and so it's like somebody else comes to the surface and they're doing it. And they feel, they feel like they're not the ones doing it. So it's a strange situation. But it also speaks to that aspect of the supernatural that I happen to think is real. Let's get to another question here. Don is asking, is there any truth to the theory he was sexually abused as a child to maybe warp his views on women? Well, that's a good question because there's a lot of children that have been severely damaged through sexual abuse and uh, had had many bad things happen to them. Uh, But there's nothing in the record. There's nothing I could locate. He actually came from a very loving home. That doesn't mean something couldn't have happened that we don't know about it. But from what I can tell, you know, he came from a loving home. Everything seemed to be normal. So I don't think it was from sexual abuse, no. Tripp is asking, do you believe Gerald Stano got his ideas from Ted Bundy? Seems both were addicted to the rush of the kill and time after wondering if they were going to get caught. You know, I, I don't know as much about Stano as I probably need to, but I can talk a bit about the rush of the kill. These killers that are like this, they share a lot of common traits. And you got to remember, when you're, when you're speaking to people like Bundy or I guess maybe Stano too and some other ones, a lot of them, even, even some of them that are not well-known, they're very mystical about murder. And a lot of these people... Uh, they consider it almost sacred when they can take a person's life because then it's like they own that moment forever. And so they share a lot of common feelings and experiences when they're dealing with a victim and someone that they murder. So I don't know what Stano picked up from Bundy or whatever. I don't know anything about that because I don't know enough about that man. As much as I write true crime, I don't know a whole lot about Stano, but I've heard of him. But, uh, yeah, you'll see these odd traits come out of them. And it all goes back to that mystical aspect of murder and, and how they like to be joined to that. It kind of makes them like God because they see, you know, Bundy always wanted to be in their face and see the light go out of their eyes. And, and he used to, he told Bob Keppel, he said he would enjoy the cyanotic hue that occurs to a woman's fingernails after she's freshly dead, the turning, you know, the losing of the oxygen and, and, and what that will do. And so they, they consider these events almost sacred and they consider, 
I know Bundy did, the ground, the dumping grounds as being almost sacred. And so you have these very peculiar things. These types of murders are not murders over anger where you can do it and walk away. No, these carry almost like a special power with them and they can be masturbatory material for these people for decades to come. They just love the fact that, that they own the woman they killed. And in some cases, they only they know where the bodies are buried. And that means something to them. So they're all very strange. They're, they're very warped. But, there are, but they are often warped in very similar areas. It was said that Ted felt that every time he killed, he took a piece of them. And I think of that if I look at the horror movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street, mm -hmm. that every time Freddy killed, that person's soul yeah. went into his body. And that's kind of the way Ted described it. In fact, so much so that he would go and almost, lack of a better term, celebrate back with the bodies until they were so badly mm -hmm. decomposed that he couldn't recognize them or animals had torn them apart. And he went back to yeah. pay tribute to his killing sites. I mean, that is yeah. de that is deranged. Well, you know, a, a lot of them will do this. They caught Arthur Shawcross masturbating at a bridge where he had dumped a body, and he was there reliving it. And they'll do this. And, you know, it, it's not like, you know, I mean, if you think about it, Bundy had four heads in his Washington State apartment at one time. In his last confession with Bill, well, the confession with, with Bill Hagmeyer, he said he'd severed as many as 12 heads of his victims. So they had these peculiar things, and I don't know how long he was able to keep these heads before he... He got rid of them, but yeah, he would go back and visit. That's why I say, even if the even if the bones were scattered, if he goes back to a dump site where the bones are scattered, uh, it wouldn't matter because that's still going to hold a special place for him and feeling, and it will it will charge him sexually just being there to where he'd have to seek a release. This is how these people think. That's why Shaw, Shawcross was masturbating on the bridge. So this is how linked they are to that stuff. And they're sexual sadists. And yeah, they're strange. They're, they're, they're almost normal people who don't study this stuff. They can't imagine it. They can't imagine there's people like this walking around. But there are. On Twitter at hashtag Spaced Out Radio, Canadian Joe is asking, is it true that Ted Bundy's poor driving skills are what got him caught? That is funny. Uh, he was a terrible driver. I mean, he drove this little Volkswagen, right? And he drove, he was a troller. He was so mobile. It's, it's, I'm surprised he never had a wreck, but he wasn't very good at driving. He wasn't very good with directions. And um, I say in the book, The Money Murders, that he had stolen a, a car and he was coming through Aspen uh, and uh, uh he was weaving, driving this Cadillac weaving. There was a patrol car that was heading to another location because of a, a possible rape and robbery. And they saw this Cadillac coming towards them, and it was weaving and stuff. And uh, they thought, well, it's a drunk. we got to pull this one over. 
and they found out that the person wasn't drunk and it was also Theodore Bundy. He, he had come back. He had he wandered his way back into Aspen after his first escape. He was trying to get out of the area, but he couldn't drive. It was a big car and he was having trouble driving it and he wasn't high or anything. So yeah, he, it, it never got him caught like it should get him caught. It got him caught at that, at that one time. But with all the driving he did do, uh, you know, he managed to not crash himself and kill himself. And, but, uh, yeah, he, he, I had to laugh because his, his driving skills were not up to par. Let's get to a question from AM at the Revolution Radio chat room asking, could the body counts of Bundy and the Green River Killers have meshed together? Uh... Do you mean, what do they really mean by that? Like, well, for instance, are you talking about the numbers? Ga- Ga- numbers yeah, Gary, Ridge, Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, I know Ted Bundy had said, look, you guys should interview me so you could try and catch this guy. I know right. that happened, but were any of Bundy's victims maybe pushed over towards Gary Ridgeway? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Yeah, and you know, <clears throat> they were both going after two different kinds of women, and um, Bundy was fascinated, I think, by the by, by by that case, and he, you know, Keppel originally came to him uh, with that case, but really in the back of Keppel's mind was he wanted to also down the road get to Bundy's own crimes, and that's what was in the back of Keppel's mind. But uh, Keppel brought him pictures and stuff, and he, Bundy just loved looking at the crime scene photos and going over the case files. But uh, they, they were killing two different kinds of women. To be honest, I don't know uh, who had the higher body count. If you look at Bundy's, uh, they say 30 to 36. Most people think it goes higher. I think it goes somewhat higher. It wouldn't surprise me if it weren't 40 or 50. But it, some people have these outlandish things that's 100 or more. I don't believe that. But And I don't uh, know how, how many did, did uh, you know Ridgeway kill. Was it up like something like 40 or something or what? 40 plus, yes. 40 plus, okay. But I remember Bundy stating some things about uh, Ridgeway concerning uh, um, things he would probably do or probably change. And so kind of like one of these movies where you're watching a serial killer trying to figure out another serial killer. But, uh, yeah, they both were just, they were prolific, but they went after different people. And so the kind of women that Bundy killed, they were never going to end up in that world that would cause them. And Ridgeway went for the other kind. And so, yeah, that's kind of where they met, I guess. Ron is asking in the SOR Space Travelers Club, Ted was so smart, so smug. Do you think he deliberately set himself up to be caught? Did he assume law was inferior and his ego would be fed by notoriety he achieved by being prosecuted? Yeah, he had a really big ego. If you study, if you read my book, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History, I put in uh, a manual 10A's report uh, in the Florida section. He interviewed, but he, he had a great... Uh, analysis of, of the psychological state of Ted Bundy. And um, he, Bundy was a strange bird. He would, um, he would hinder his own defense team 
with a lot of things he said, and he would put out tantalizing things to the cops to keep that going. And it was like, today called him like an actor on the stage. And it was important for him because of his ego. So you're right to be in the midst of that. And today went so far to say that if he saw the, um, like, for example, the prosecution being hampered, he may give them something to help bolster their side while he's, uh, you know, still trying to save himself on this side. It was a strange, strange situation. And he was a real detriment to his attorneys. But yes, he would do that. He loved the spotlight without question. He loved it. You know, he never wanted to be caught. But once he was caught and he knew he wasn't going to be getting away from them, he adapted very quickly to the spotlight. And he thought he wouldn't, people wouldn't see through him. Most people did. But, uh, yeah, he, he, he was a, a big part of that. And there's also this. He had asked once uh, about executions. Where would be the most likely place for someone to be executed? And isn't it, and they said Florida. And isn't it funny when he escaped from Colorado and he hopped a flight to Chicago and he took a train to Ann Arbor and in Ann Arbor he went to the uh, – uh, university there and sought out schools along the Florida coast. And he picked Tallahassee, couldn't find one right on the water, but he went to Tallahassee. Real funny that he went to Florida, the very place he was told you'd be the most likely to be executed. People get executed there routinely. So was there something to that? Yeah, there could have been. I think there absolutely could have been. So you have like a dichotomy in Bundy. He didn't want to be caught, but there's an aspect that maybe he did. It's very strange, but that, again, we're talking with a very complex and multifaceted individual that is very hard to explain. And when you go into Florida, when he all of a sudden went on his rampage there where he bit the young lady's buttocks, leaving his teeth marks, yeah. I mean, that was the yeah. only time during his crime spree that he went uh-huh. absolutely bonkers in leaving true right. evidence. He never left any right. fingerprints. He never left a murder weapon. They had nothing right. on him. As much as they suspected him doing it, they had nothing mm-hmm. to convict him on until that point. Yeah, it, it was. It, it, it's interesting. If you look at the mo of what happened at Kyle Omega, uh, where the two girls were killed and four were attacked, um, two seriously injured, broken jaws, concussions, but two killed. The mo isn't anything like the killer that he was in the Northwest or or Utah, Colorado, Idaho, or anything like that. He was a totally different man. He was sometimes physically unkempt. He was not as careful as he needed to be. And there was another thing, too. He never had any problem in Washington State drawing women to himself, or even in Colorado or those states. He never never put off what I would call bad vibes. Unless he were in the midst of hunting a woman, and a woman didn't go with him, and they said, well, his eyes look weird. But when he was just interacting with people, oh, people, women would flock to him. They, they liked him. But when he was in Florida, and for example, the night of the uh, 
Chi Omega attacks that, that would occur that night. He was in uh, Sherrod's or Sherrod's, some people say Sherrod's, a disco that was right next to Chi Omega. And I write about the testimony of people in there, the women, they, they found him creepy. They said he was putting off bad vibes. The number of women, they, did, they were praying to God, he, he wouldn't ask them to dance. He, so he, he had vastly changed. And so what I say in the book is, uh, unlike before, he couldn't draw the conscious women to him. So he went next door in the middle of the night and attacked the unconscious women. So he was on a definite spiraling downward decline of the kind of killer. He was really unrecognizable in Florida from what he was before. So, yeah, it was a real decline. But it, like I say, pristine killer in the Northwest. He couldn't, as far as I'm concerned, improve it anymore. In fact, Washington State never never got in. He could have never been charged in Washington state. Even after it came out, he's who he was. He had done it so completely correctly through that planning. Uh, Bob Keppel was left with nothing but circumstantial evidence. He was never going to be charged up there and probably wouldn't have been charged in Utah, except for when he was charged with, which was the kidnapping of Carol Orange, uh, which he did, but, she, but she got away. And then he was jailed for that a year later when he was arrested uh, and he came to light. Uh, and he was tried for that crime, got 15 years in the Utah State Prison. They call it the Point of the Mountain Prison. And it was from, and he should have just done his sentence there. But Mike Fisher out of Colorado had gotten um, the warrant uh, for the murder of Karen Campbell uh, at Aspen at, in Snowmass at the Wildwood Inn. And so they transferred him to Colorado. And the Colorado jailers were like keystone cops. And unfortunately, he escaped twice from there, which meant that ladies were going to die in Florida and also the young girl, Kim Leach. But it was real, real, real odd because the spiraling downward as to who he was and the type of killer he was and the type of person he was. By the time he got to Florida, he was a very changed individual and people were noticing it, too. So it was just just real different. They had to wait for him to make the mistake. Otherwise, he could be like the Zodiac yeah. killer and still be on loose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because as soon as it hit the papers that um, these women had been attacked in Florida, Bob Kevin was on the phone. Mike Fisher was on the phone. They said, your guy's Bundy. When you, when you get him, it's who it's going to be. And uh, sure enough, they, 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 they captured Bundy in, um, in Pensacola before he, he could get out of the state. But my, Mike Fisher, you know, I mean, they, 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 I mean that, it was his state, Colorado. He warned those jailers to watch this man. He's a danger. But Ted was so friendly. They got to calling him Ted. They thought he was just a normal guy defending himself in court. He was acting as his own attorney for a while in Colorado, and they and and they put their guard down. But Bundy never put his guard down. Bundy know he knew how to work people, and he knew how to work them into his favor. But all of that suave aspect of him, he was reduced to. And if you, if if you if you read my book, you can see how far the decline was by the time he got to Florida. Sometimes he was just flat dirty. 
He just wasn't the same kind of killer. But he, he made a lot of mistakes in Florida. But once they got him and they, and they identified him in Pensacola as Ted Bundy, and they dealt with all these other detectives, it was just a matter of time before they put two and two together with the Kyle Omega murder, murders, the murder of Kim Leach. He was caught with uh, some you know evidence. And so, you know, it just, he just wasn't the same kind of killer. He was becoming very tired too. Now, make no mistake about it. If he would have been caught, he kept killing. At some point, he would have been captured or killed by the police. At some point, the killing would have come to an end. But it just so happened it ended in Florida before he got out of the state. And once he was he was in the state of Florida's hands, he was never going to be let go. And here's something I'll tell you that it was off the record that somebody told me. I'm not even going to tell you who told me. But they asked me to turn off the tape recorder, and I did. This is back when I was uh, in Florida in 2008 as I was finished up the book. This individual said I got a call from somebody from a particular department. And here's what they said to me. If somehow Bundy beats the charges, you're going to get a call that we have found a body on the side of the road. And we've discovered it's Ted Bundy. He said, so we're going to handle that. Okay. And he's not going to leave Florida alive. And so I said, okay, that's very interesting. Put the tape recorder back on and we went on and talked about other things. There was no way that man was going to leave Florida alive. They were either going to kill him legally or illegally, but he was going to die. And so that's what they said. And, they, and believe me, they, they, they had the ways to do it. So, yeah, it, it was just going to be it for Mr. Bundy. Uh, he had an opportunity in Florida to confess to the murders without any complaining, without any antics at all, just confess to the murders, and he would get life without parole. He could have still been there today. Instead of doing that, he got mad at his attorneys. He fired them. He went on a few-minute rant. And then he, he wanted to make the confession and the prosecuting, the prosecution said the deal's off. It's over. You, you're not getting it now. And then they had to go into the two trials. And of course he lost both of those badly. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. And of course at the end, he tried to buy for time, you know, to, to tell the truth about some of these, again, mystical thing. He doesn't want to turn the real truth of, of what he did to these women, but he was willing to turn, uh, loose of a lot of the truth in the hopes he would buy himself more time. Of course, that did not work, and he was he was put to death right on time. The the, the governor, there was no way they were going to stop him from being uh, being you know put to death. And some people, like I say, they're sorry that happened. They think he would talk. If if Bundy were here today, he might tell things. But he, I don't think he would ever give anybody any tr more truth than what he gave out towards the end of his life, trying to save his life. I mean, they, they might get a good conversation out, out of Bundy, but he knew how to work people. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, he could have been alive today, but uh, the trials went forward and, and, and he lost badly. But there's a lot of people in, in, in Washington State and in these states that were highly affected by him. And one of the guys that dealt with me, um, who had never been interviewed before, uh, he was, he's a Mormon. And he was involved with helping Bundy um, when Bundy was in Utah. 
he was offered a lot of money by one of the national magazines to give his story, which is rather in depth, uh, about his relationship with Bundy. Like two days after, two three days after his execution, he said no. He didn't need the money. He wasn't going to do it. Here I come along in 2015. I guess I got a good reputation, like I told you before. I, I, I got one lady to talk. The lady, there's a, there's a picture of a, a really pretty blonde lady who's washing dishes with Ted Bundy at this party in Utah. And her name is Carol Bartholomew. I got to interview her. She gave me her whole story. It's in the book. She gave me the names of the people Ted worked with. One of the men was the one I just told you about was offered all this money to give his case to a national magazine. He wouldn't do it. So he, here I come along 2015, he gives it to me for free. <laughs> that's the best way to get it. Cause I never pay for interviews. I just don't do that. But that, that's the neat thing. And that's what happens with the passage of time. And if they like you, and if you have a good reputation and you always do what you say, they'll talk to you. And I've never had trouble with most people talking to me. And like I say, I've always kept my promise. So, um, that gets around. And, um, so, but it's interesting and those people will talk and there's people still out there like that. But that was a real coup for me to get his Mormon friends to talk because so many of them haven't talked. But again, that's in my second book, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting case. There's a comment on Twitter at hashtag spaced out radio by John, but I'm going to form it in a form of a question because I think this has relevance. And he is saying if Bundy okay. had gotten life, He'd have been a chronic escape risk. Do you agree with that, even in solitary confinement? Well, yeah. You know what? That's a good question. I'm not sure they'd have kept him in solitary. And he probably would have been killed in the general population. Um, but they might have kept him in solitary, but there was no guarantee of that. Um, yes, he, you know, he, uh, he would be considered a flight risk. Yeah, he might try to escape. Some prisons are locked down better than others, and they're hard to get out of. But, uh, yeah, you always run that risk. And that, that's, that's why the death penalty um, cures that. And uh, I've never had a problem with the death penalty. I think in, in these horrendous cases, I don't believe you should execute somebody who gets in a fight and kills somebody. I mean, I mean those things, these crimes of passion, things happen. Uh, that's different. But when you've got somebody heinous like this, I think those people are much better off uh, being put to death because they, it, it, it eliminates the risk to people in prison, not just inmates, but guards. And if they ever get out, they'll, they'll absolutely kill again uh, unless they're so infirm that they can't. So, uh, th yeah, there's always that risk. But um, in Bundy's case, they might have. They didn't have to guarantee him solitary but they probably would have watched him closely. But it, like I say, if he'd have gone into the general population, personally, I think it would just be a matter of time. I want to get to a question from Everett here, and this is more towards you personally. And Everett is asking, okay. Kevin, do you find that researching and writing about true crime affects the sermons you write for your parishioners? No, that's <laughs> All my parishioners know me very well, and they, and they know why I do it. And if you look at the Bible, there's a tremendous amount of violence in the Bible, a tremendous amount of cruelty, not from God to people, but from people to people. And so it's there. Everything sexual immorality, everything we deal with today 
is in scripture and it goes back to the heart of people and where they are and which kind of roads they decide to walk down. So my people may tease me about this stuff and joke with me, but they see it as very normal. So no, I've actually, I've never had a problem like that. Now, if somebody doesn't know me, if I talk to another minister and you know, their eyebrows might raise, but they don't talk, you know, ones that know me, they just, they just know me and they don't see anything weird about it, but there could be some because some people are closed off and they just don't want to go down that road. And I can understand that, but uh, it, does it have a negative effect on, on, on anybody in my church? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Back to Ted Bundy here for a second. Do you believe that he should have been executed? And, and let yes. me, and I, and I can understand that quick answer. But to me, maybe I'm looking at it because we don't have the death Mm -hmm. penalty here in Canada. And trust me, I'm I'm on the fence with that, whether or not we should. There are are killers here who I do believe deserve it. Clifford Olson, Robert Willie Picton from the, the famous, infamous pig farm where he murdered all the hookers around Vancouver and drug-addicted women. Paul Bernardo is is another one that I think should have been executed. But, you know, I think in special circumstance, we probably should be looking at that. But I guess where I have a, a, a soft spot for this is there are a lot of families who 30, 40 years later still have no resolve. And Bundy had said, yes, I killed her. And all they would have had to do was fly him back to Washington State or Idaho or Utah to try and get some Uh sort of closure. But the Florida governor Mm -hmm. at the time basically said, well, it sucks to be them. We got him here. We're not letting him go. He's a dead man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fairness to Florida, the detectives from the respective states were all there, and they were allowed to come there. And they were there to clear up the cases that that they knew about. And like, for example, in the um, Debbie Kent case, he, he said that he had dumped her body near Fairview, Utah. And they found a human kneecap. It's no doubt hers. But uh, a lot of times... Here's what he said. Uh, he, he used to sca- leave bodies out so that the critters would get them and they'd eat them and scatter the bones. He said, but those that I've buried have never been um, found. Now, a number of these women that are buried, they could be people that he picked up as hitchhikers and killed them. He doesn't even know where they are. Their, their families don't even know what happened to them. So he might not even be able to place a name with them. We don't know. But he was trying to clear the cases that were being brought to him. So he was at least trying to do his job in that respect. So the thing about this is that there's a, there's a flip side to that. I mean, if a killer wants to trade his life so that he isn't executed by coming clean and telling all his victims' families where the bodies are, I have no problem with that. Let them work out a deal and, and, and let him rot in prison. That, that's no problem. But there's a flip side to that. There are a lot of families of murdered victims that feel like they can't close it out if the person that killed their loved one is still alive. Now, they don't all feel that way, but a large percentage do, because here their loved one 
They can't hold them. They can't kiss them. They're not breathing. Everything's been taken away. And their killer is watching TV, having hot food delivered, medical care, and he's breathing air that he refused to let their loved one breathe anymore. And very often when the person is put to death, something happens within those people to where it's never going to bring their family member back, but they close it out. And that is a very real and valid psychological reason for putting these people to death. Now, from my perspective, they didn't murder my loved ones. I look at it from a, just analytical. I don't see good in all humans. I just don't. You've got people out there that think if you're human, you've got value no matter who you are. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that you can cross a line and become so diabolical that the only just thing to do is make you leave your own body and leave the earth. That's the just thing. So I see the death penalty, if it is administered correctly, as a perfect tool of the justice system for very heinous crimes. And that if you don't put them to death, justice is not served. We've got people here in Kentucky that have been on death row for 30 years, and they're still on death row. They ought to be put to death. They need to be in the ground. Other than that, either that or abolish the death penalty because you're just, you know, you, you got to do one or the other. There's no reason why people's appeals, and that's not what's going on here in Kentucky. They just let these things sit. A couple of people have been put to death since 1976. That's it. Florida, Texas, they crank them out. They do it the right way. So for these heinous killers, I think the best thing for everybody, including the families, of, of the murder. That's who I think of first. Put them to death. Let these people move on. There's no reason to keep them around. So here I am a minister, but the scripture also talks about it. you shed man's blood by man, your blood will be shed. There's just something about justice. When you've got somebody like Bundy that goes out and kills like this. Again, I'm not talking about that guy who kills uh, his wife's boyfriend, uh, she's sleeping with some guy and he kills him. Yeah, right. He shouldn't have done it. That's murder. I get it. But that's not Theodore Bundy. Does, should he get the death penalty? No, he should go to jail. But somebody who goes out and willingly destroys human lives for no reason. Yeah. I, as far as I'm concerned, pull the switch and the sooner the better. Doesn't that go against the 10 commandments? That's according to Dab at hashtag spaced out radio. Ah, well, this is the beauty of being, being a minister. There is no commandment that says thou shalt not kill. I'm going to say it again. There is no commandment that says thou shalt not kill. What it says in the Hebrew is thou shalt do no murder. The killing of retribution or the killing in war or the killing to defend your life is not murder. It was translated into the King James Bible incorrectly from the Hebrew. You can check this out anywhere if anybody doubts me. This is common knowledge among theologians. It says, thou shalt do no murder. The Hebrew word is murder. It is not kill. If it were kill, that would seem like a major contradiction. It is not. It is thou shalt do no murder. And therefore, it lines up with everything else that says in Scripture concerning the ability and the right to put people to death 
for heinous crimes against humanity. I don't know. I'm still on the fence about the whole killing by the government. That's okay. I, I'm still... Sure, know, that's okay. You know, and that's a debate that will continue whether or not it continues. I, and, you know, sure. I sure. have... And in a case like Ted Bundy's, I can fully understand. But I still have a problem with playing God before there is resolution for a lot of these families. Well, and, I mean, yeah, that's true. People can... Yeah, I understand that. There's a lot of opinions out there. But, I mean, yeah, I do understand that. People have... Some people have real problems with the death penalty. And I get that, but um, sometimes I also run into people who that's all they're thinking about is the murderer. They don't give a hoot for the victim's families. They don't even want to hear it. Now, I'm sure that's not your audience, but I do run into that. I get that. Now, he is on record for 30 murders across six states in the United States. And there's still a number that he is linked to, believed to be the killer, but no body has been found, just what he had stated. But he stated something very strange before his death. He stated that there are certain crimes or certain murders that he would not get into because it was too close to home. What did that mean? Right. That's the killing of teenage girls. He, he killed uh, his. He killed. Uh, uh, well, for instance, Kim Leach's last victim was twelve. Uh, the Lynette Culver girl that I told you about in Pocatello, she was twelve. He didn't like talking about the murder of basically children, uh, but he wasn't against killing very young teenage girls, and those are the things that he wanted to stay away from, and that's why. I believe the numbers go higher because he would confess to the killing of the college co-eds. Apparently it didn't bother him to come clean on that, but he, this is weird, but he probably felt he'd be judged more harshly if he admitted he was a killer and a joyful killer of young girls. So that's, that's, I think he said that to Keppel. I think that's what he meant by that. I just found that very strange because there was some point because this could lead to that he actually started his murderous spree as a teenager himself. Is there any proof of that? Well, I say in my book, I start off the Bundy murders in the preface with the kidnapping and ultimately they never found it, but it's the murder of Anne-Marie Burr. And she was a little eight-year-old girl uh, and I've been to her house in the, uh, up in Washington State in Tacoma. And um, Buddy lived a couple of miles from there, but he, he, he always denied it. But when he was dealing with Ron Holmes here in Kentucky, uh, he's a criminologist. In fact, he had a good relationship with Ron Holmes. He was going to do a lot of confessing to Ron Holmes. Uh, Bob Keppel called Ron Holmes Bundy's golden boy because he was going to say all his confessions to him until they had a falling out. Anyway, he told Ron Holmes he linked himself to the murder of Anne-Marie Burr. And uh, I've got a 1987 article from the Tacoma News Tribune in the Metro section where it quotes Holmes 
in this article about that. And when I interviewed Holmes in 2007, he said the same thing verbatim to me here in his office in Louisville. And um, he may have killed little Anne-Marie Burr. And if he did, if he did, then, um, and we don't know, but if he did, then he was about 14 at the, at the time. What's really strange, though, is that what gives it the ring of truth is some things he said about it. And when he was talking to Holmes about it, he said, well, you know, maybe the, the person that did that got her out and strangled her in like the orchard, you know, next to the house, and then maybe had sex with her afterwards. Well, that was big for Bundy. That was big for Bundy having sex after death. And he also said that this person who may have done that may have started with a girl, maybe even eight or nine, and was also being looked at having to do with murders at Lake Sammamish. Well, that's him. So he inexorably linked himself in that interview with Ron Holmes to the murder of uh, Anne-Marie Burr. So there's people that think that he may have done that. He had an uncle that lived close by, uh, uh, Burr's home and uh, you know he was over there quite a bit so we don't know I, 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 honestly I, I don't even know which way to think about it but I do know this Bundy linked himself to it and he may have done it And but it's been what 54, 55 years now 56 maybe I can't remember uh, and so it, it's a cold case it's never going to be proven but she was murdered and she's gone and uh, her mother I, I interviewed her mother um Oh, for the book of the Bundy murders a couple of times over the phone. And, uh, she's passed away since then. And Louise Bundy uh, has passed away. So they're starting, the older folks are starting to die now. But, um, yeah, he, he, he may have done that, but I'm convinced, absolutely convinced he's killed more young girls than just Kim Leach and Lynette Culver. And those are the ones that he wouldn't want to talk about. So in your opinion, how many murders do you think he, is linked to that were never processed through the courts. Oh yeah. Well, they couldn't charge him with everything, even though he kind of admitted to, uh, you know, things, uh, but, uh, they, but they, they, they've got it down to 30 and they could easily round it off to 36. I don't know. In my mind, five or 10 more could be 15 more. It depends on when he started. Here's the thing about Bundy. If he killed Emory Burr, he did so in 1961 when he was 14. But then again, he killed probably in 72. We know he killed maybe one or two in 73. But 1974, January, was his launch in the murder. That's where he launched himself in the murder and never came back. And he could have killed some, some people in 69, too. There is talk, but he did supposedly tell Art Norman a psychologist that he killed two when he was home back East. And it might be those two girls that died up in New Jersey. They were together. I think, I don't know, but we don't know. This is part of the mystery that's still attached to it. So if you take 30, 36 and you start adding some of these other numbers, you can easily get up beyond 40. So I say anything between 40 and 50, at least that's a possibility. And it may not go high as 50. It may be around 40. It could be 38. We don't know. But in my view, it's not going to be a hundred or one of these outlandish numbers. 
We only got about four minutes left here with you, and I've got two questions left. One from our audience member, Tripp, who is asking, was Ted Bundy's body and brain ever studied after his death? I don't believe they studied the brain. They did autopsy him, and they looked at it. And uh, But he, he was then cremated, and uh, I'm surprised they did it, but he, he wanted his ashes spread over the Cascade Mountains. And apparently that's that that's what happened. I mean, somebody must have done it in the family. I don't know, but that's also where he left the remains of um, Donna Gail Manson. But uh, he, he that's what he said he wanted, and they did it. But they, there's a picture of Ted dead, and you can see they you can see the place around their skull where they cut. So they did examine it for any tumors and anything like that. And they probably didn't find a thing. It was probably quite normal, or as they say in the medical field, unremarkable boring brain i i just thought that would be an interesting brain to study maybe to find out well, you what think was so. in them. yeah i mean if you see any abnormalities of course that would be a dead giveaway i do know they did some tests on him when they were examining him they were doing physical tests on his brain stuff like that they didn't find any abnormalities at least for what they could now they didn't have mris like they do now they had other ways of looking at things dyes and x-rays and whatever but they couldn't find anything that was, as they say, unremarkable. And uh, I think he had like a little sinus problem at one point, but that was it. He's really a pretty you know, healthy man. And uh, so, but yeah, I mean, if they have found, I'm sure they looked for any, any abnormality. Uh, but as far as taking his brain and taking it somewhere, no, I, I don't believe they did that. Why did he never use a gun or a knife? You know, uh, it's a good question. Now, Carol DeRanch believed he had a knife when he abducted her. I, I never thought so. I spoke to the prosecuting uh, attorneys. They didn't think so. Even though she said it, he was using a crowbar. Uh, he did flash a badge as if he was a police officer. I don't think Michelle asked, said something to him about that. Michelle said, I guess maybe if you want somebody to go with you, you have to pull a gun. And Bunny said immediately, it's when in the conversations with the killer, he said, well, you wouldn't necessarily need a gun. Bundy let all his women away. If he didn't strike them, like if, if he came up and attacked them and, and, and rendered them unconscious with a hit on the crowbar, he'd accomplish his goal. But he also accomplished his goal if he just lured them into his car and off he went and cracked them in the head then. So I don't think Bundy ever felt like he needed a gun. Plus, if he was caught with a gun, he, he may have been a little bothered by that. You know, he could get away with what, what he thought. He didn't, but he could get away with his murder kit. He could try to explain that away. But he couldn't explain away a handgun. But he, apparently he never used one, even though Carol thought he might have, or he did. And uh, apparently he did. Now he, he, now, he did. He did have a ice pick, and he would use that. I don't know what he used it for. They did find a puncture wound. In one of the in one of the girls' abdomen, but you know, he didn't use it to kill the woman, obviously. So why he had the ice pick in the murder kit, I don't know. It's a red handled one. There's a picture in my book, but uh, but uh, yeah, he used it at least once. And guns make a lot of noise, and he wasn't they into do. noise. They do, they do, and uh, I talk about the possibility of him using a gun when somebody heard a pop at a high school when he was abducting Debbie Kent, I don't really think that's what it was. I think it's probably more likely what they heard was him missing her and hitting a car 
with his um, crowbar, but that's probably the noise that they heard. But then he hit her again and knocked her out. But anyway, you're right. I, I don't think he ever used the gun. My friend, we only got about 30 seconds left with you. Where can people find your trilogy if they're interested? Okay, I write, I have six different publishers, but I write almost exclusively now, not quite exclusively, but for Wild Blue Press. You can check me out at wildbluepress.com and look down the authors. You'll see Kevin Sullivan. They have all my books for sale there or go to my author page on Amazon. Kevin M. Sullivan, you can look my book up, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. Any of my Bundy books, Google it, take me to take you to Amazon. Go down to my picture, hit my name, click on it. It'll take you right to my author page, and uh, you'll see and, and you'll see everything there. Kevin, thank you so much for being on Spaced Out Radio tonight. What a pleasure it was to have you. Spaced Out Radio listeners, we got one hour left. Everett Themer from The Encounter Online is going to join me next. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. And while you're there, don't forget, go to Amazon. Check out Kevin M. Sullivan for the great books and his trilogy. If you're into murder mysteries, true crime, that's the place to get it. And, of course, spaceoutradio.com, our website. Check it out during the break for our plethora of features that we have for you. We will be right back. Once again, Everett Themer from The Encounter Online joining me for hour number three. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines, your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with you four cop On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Witkowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, 
relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for the Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top-quality paranormal stories, from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter, online, only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio or our website, including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. 
The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio, Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us. Tomorrow night on the program, Donald R. Young is going to join us. We're going to talk Strange Outdoors. It's going to be a great show indeed, talking everything cryptid from Bigfoot to Dogman and whatever else is hiding in the forest all around North America. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time is when we get going at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone listening in on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 150 countries around the world. Good to have you with us. We're also live on WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, where they film The Walking Dead. Good to have you with us for your nighttime programming. We're live on KTLK, The Fringe FM, in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Laodician. Laodician is your password for tonight. Use it wisely, space travelers, because Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the Mighty SOR. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. You can also follow us on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player.fm, and Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month. You can read up on the encounter online. we got some great stories on there as well. Or you could go to Patreon.com and for as low as a dollar a month, become a patron of Spaced Out Radios. Hour number three from the Encounter Online, Everett Themer, news editor for Spaced Out Radio, joins us. Everett, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, before we get into it, in what we're going to discuss, which is pretty much the same topic as tonight, on Facebook earlier today, I posted a picture of a stump. I don't know know why. Yes, yes, you did. I don't know why I did, but I just posted a picture of the stump. And the caption the caption that I put on there was just look at this stump. Look at it. Your thoughts. And it's ama- it's amazing what people will, will put on there for a picture of a stump. Well, you know, I have to tell you I looked at that thing for about 10 minutes looking for Bigfoot in the background, an alien in the background. I enlarged it. For the first five or ten minutes I looked at it, 
I, I actually thought you found one picture that I couldn't even find anything to matrix or, or, you know, be affected by pareidolia and start to see things. And then I just kept enlarging it. And pretty soon I was seeing alien faces in the leaves and, and things in the moss. And, and then I find out you just posted a picture of a stump. I know. I know. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know how else to put it. I, I'm sitting around my computer at my daytime office today, and I'm thinking, you know, I just post my thought of the Dave, which I do every day, and I wasn't getting much reaction on that. And usually there's like instantaneous reaction. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to throw a picture of a stump on there and figure out what people will say. You know, it's amazing what people will read into. Looking for some sort of pareidolia or some sort of, let's see, we've got Gnome House. Of course we did. Uh, fairy House. Uh, face in the Stump. Whatever. I still can't find the face in the stump. I've been looking at that one. Elizabeth Anglin from Space Out Weekend. Oh, yeah, there's a face in the stump. Where? It's just a picture of a stump, man. Just a picture of a stump. Yeah, I analyzed that picture more than I've analyzed some actual ghost photography looking for something. So, you know, that was a nice, a nice diversion. But darn it, Dave, you can't do that again. Why? Why can't I do that again? <laughs> because I don't have time to look for things that aren't there. And and when you post a picture, that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, but I'm I, po gonna I told the truth. St stare at it. I, I told the truth. You you did. I will give you that. But uh, yeah, you got some interesting reactions on that. I did. I did. I got gateway to another realm. <laughs> Moss is is sexy. It looks like an octopus. Oscar the Grouch. And didn't somebody comment about it being a uh, a tree that Bigfoot cut down or something? There was there was something on there about that, I believe. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Because I was trying, I was trying to figure out. I know Bigfoot can be strong, but that's a pretty big stump. I I fully agree, man. I fully agree. It was. It was a stump, and that's all it was. It was just a stump, my friend. What can I say? I don't even know what to say. Yes. Next time, I'm not even going to forewarn you. It's not even going to forewarn you. Well, now, you. that's kind of mean. Well, I mean, dude, you're, you're, you're hammering me here. I'm putting a stump on my picture. <laughs> I don't know how to take All it. All right, well, the next time you do it, I'm going to analyze the heck out of it, and I'm going to find something in that picture, whether it's there or not. Well, of course you will. You're a pareidolia kind of freak like that. <laughs> yeah, anyhow, I am. Anyhow, moving forward, I just wanted to start off with a little bit of fun there. Kevin Sullivan, our guest the first two hours, I, I still can't believe a man as godly as him is a true crime writer of one of America's most notorious serial killers. 
that one that one yeah. was a little strange. I didn't know that he was he was a minister up until I was talking to him before the show. That seems like an odd we won't call it a hobby, but an odd direction to write in when you're a minister. I fully agree with that. I fully agree with that. And, you know, it's just one of the, it, it was one of those things that kind of caught me off guard. And rarely do I get caught off guard by a guest. But it just seems so different because it's literally two different worlds. Well, you know, I asked a question about how this affected his, his sermons to you. And maybe I didn't ask it right, or maybe he misunderstood it. But I can't imagine spending your, your free time researching these kinds of things and not having it affect your, your views. And, and I don't mean make him question his religion, but have it affect what you want to say to the people that you're preaching to. Then again, maybe we're looking too deeply into it. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Could be. I want to get into something here that I think is really important. When I was studying up about this show earlier on this afternoon, one of the things that bothered me about it, and we got into it with Kevin late in the show, was the fact that Florida was so adamant about executing Ted Bundy. And as Kevin Sullivan said that no matter what, Ted Bundy was not leaving Florida alive, either legally or illegally. You know, and that was eerie as it is, that he would not cross the state line as a, as a living man. But it comes down, and I don't want to get into the whole big debate of whether or not capital punishment should exist. That's a topic for a different night. But I think I'd like to spend some time, Everett, discussing the fact that there was absolutely no closure for potentially a dozen, two dozen families out there that he was never convicted on or where he admitted to crimes and they never really even pursued it very well. And I don't know, man, if I was a parent, if somebody murdered my child or my wife, or anybody close to me in a murderous rampage like this. And I realize technology is, is better these days. But either way, if, if I had a murderer in prison saying, yeah, I murdered Dave Scott's son or Dave Scott's daughter, and the case was still unresolved and they put him to death, I would be so upset and angry with my government, man. I would. Because that's my family member. And you know, yes, they may be gone. Yes, they may not be on this planet anymore. And hopefully they found a very soft resting place for the rest of eternity. But I would still want their body. And too many times, I, I, th I think we ever, we are... We are way too quick in the justice system to send somebody to death row who is willing to talk. 
I mean, you got them by the balls. Trade time for information. And the minute his information stops giving you anything, then you roast him. Plain and simple. I can agree with that. I I don't know if it was a an effect of the times and the administration in Florida back then. I think we have a little bit more cooperation between the criminal justice systems and police departments today, at least on something like this, than we did back then. But I don't really understand why Florida was so so quick to hold on to him and not let him go. And like you said before about uh, somebody off the record saying that he wasn't going to leave the state, um, I, that's a little dangerous. That's a fine line there. I don't know if I like a government or police official making statements like that or even acting on him because that verges on basically vigilanteism. I would agree with that. I would agree it revolves around that. Don has a question here. He goes, how long do you keep them alive? Well, as far as I'm concerned, I would trade a day for everything. Maybe a week, depending on the situation. You know, uh, you know, and, and trust me. I'm I'm not a proponent of capital punishment. Like I said, we're not getting into that debate. But there are certain cases that I absolutely agree 100% that it's a lot cheaper to put someone down than it is to keep them alive, rotting in prison. Okay, I know up here in Canada, Willie Pickton, who murdered 63 drug-addicted women and hookers, in the Vancouver area, okay? There's no reason for him to be in prison. There's no reason that my tax dollars should feed him at approximately $45,000, $50,000 a year. And that goes for every citizen. Paul Bernardo is another one in Ontario, okay? Just going off the list. Uh, Clifford Olson, he's dead now. But Canada has this stupid rule called the Faint Hope Clause, and even after his murderous rampage of 11 children, all boys, Clifford Olson still haunted the families with letters and then started applying for this faint hope clause that reduces your penalty by a third. Because in Canada, every life sentence is 25 to life. So you're serving a minimum of 25 years. Good behavior, you could get out. If you show no remorse, no action like he did, you don't. But he went in front of a parole board three times on this faint hope clause, wasting taxpayers' money when, realistically, the cost of a bullet was too much for his life. And in certain situations, I fully agree, there should be capital punishment. I don't agree when we see somebody who, say, got in a jealous rage because their girlfriend was seen making out with another guy and we kill him, to me, that's not a death penalty type sentence. It really isn't. But if you are calculated and a serial killer, absolutely you should roast. Absolutely you should fry. But only until all of your victims are found, or as many as possible. 
Would you agree with that, Everett, or do you think that the death penalty, you know, should be as harsh as it is with anybody who takes a life? You know, I come from a unique position in that I used to be entirely pro-death penalty. In a case like Ted Bundy, where he had the opportunity or he had the information to provide uh, closure to a lot of families, what is that worth? So you house him for another year, you, you extradite him to a few states, to get these families their closure. Is, that, is it what it costs to keep him alive worth getting those families the closure? And I think in that case it is. And I come from Illinois, and I don't know if you're familiar with our criminal justice system here, but we every week have a case, it seems, of somebody who was wrongly convicted. At one point, I think we had at least four or five people on death row who, after DNA evidence had progressed and developed, they were found innocent of the crimes entirely. So if you put them to death, it's such a permanent uh, solution that I really go back and forth. I mean, there are certainly people and crimes that deserve the death penalty, but you need to be absolutely sure that, you know, you get as much information and closure from them for the victims, and you need to make absolutely sure that they are 100% guilty. Absolutely agree with you on that part. And, you know, I would even throw in that death sentence, I would even throw pedophilia in there. Okay, if you have somebody who is a convicted child abuser or child rapist or or something along those lines, anybody who affects children, you got to go because that's sick and twisted. You just, you know, where's the exit button? We got to get you out of here ASAP. But when it comes to murder and serial killers, I just think of the families, man. Like, I'm not trying to be a, a, a peace lover or a tree hugger or anything like that. But the families deserve justice. And if that means that you have to you know, be transferred to another state or so on and so forth for that type of conviction, you do. But Christopher in the chat room brings up a very good point. He says, Florida wouldn't let Ted Bundy go to another state because if he was prosecuted and convicted of murder in a state without capital punishment, he would have done life instead of being executed and they wanted him dead. That's true. I don't... Mm, I'm not 100% sure that that is true. If he had been convicted and found guilty and sentenced to death in Florida, if they had extradited him and he had gone to trial in these other states, his first punishment would have still been Florida, meaning he would be sent back to Florida and I believe eventually put to death. So he could have gone and faced you know, faced all these other charges or, you know, admitted to these other victims and faced, you know, been taken to court. And he still, after it was all said and done, have been sent back to Florida because that was the first one he would have been convicted on. And then they would have administered their punishment, which obviously would have been death. And that would have nullified all the other ones. But 
that doesn't really matter once he's been put to death. At least the victims in those other states would have had closure. And I'm looking at the death count here. Washington State, they believe he killed 11 people. Utah, 8. In Florida, 3. Colorado, 3. Oregon, 2. Idaho, 2. California, 1. That equals up to 20. They believe there was approximately, or the FBI proposedly thinks that he killed 36 people. So, to me, that's 16 families who have gone almost 40 years without answers. And and that just does not does not calculate well with me that the justice system isn't about closure for these families. Now granted, I can un- go ahead. I, I can understand that, but you know, I think that the justice system is more focused on punishing the 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 criminal than providing help and support for the victims and the victims' families. But at what point do you say, Everett, you know, do you have some compassion, right? At what point do you have compassion? Instead of basically being like the Florida governor at that time and saying, they're dead, get over it, you know who killed them, and that's it. Even though it's still considered an open case file. But I, how can you judge somebody's compassion? Uh, just like you said in your book, uh, uh, pedophilia should lead to the death penalty. And, and I'm not defending anybody in Florida at the time, but maybe their view was he's ours, we want him, we want to execute him regardless of what anybody else thinks or feels. I understand that. I understand that that's where it kind of goes in regards to the whole scenario. And let's face it, a guy like Ted Bundy could not go into general population. I mean, look what happened to Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, he was beaten with a broomstick to death. Other convicted killers have had that happen as well. A lot of you know, people who've been charged with pedophilia, chronic pedophilia have been killed because of that. And justice served? I don't know. I have a hard time feeling remorse for that. However, if the government agencies knew, whether it's the FBI, whether it's police forces, knew that he was the number one suspect on a number of these unsolved crimes, I think you keep him alive. I don't think there's a choice for the sake of the families. Right? Now, we can all sit there and say, well, taxpayer dollars were wasting money. How do we know he's telling the truth and not just trying to keep himself alive, you know, by making up these stories? And yes, that's the chance you got to take. Well, you know, with that, there are always facts that the police withhold that probably he would only know. And 
I, I missed part of the interview, or I may have uh, not heard it correctly, but why didn't detectives from all these other states with these cases come down to Florida they and did. get a confession from them? They, they did, did. Okay. and they and they tried. However, the my my assumption of it, okay, in reading the notes that I read today was there wasn't enough time because the floor they were kind of pushing through this execution to get it over and done with, and basically a lot of these police forces ran out of time because they were so adamant about killing him off via the electric chair. Now Joe is saying. In the Spreaker chat room, let me just find it here. He goes, where are you, Joe? So do you think Ted Buddy shouldn't have been put to death? No, I 100% agree. He should have been put to death. I 100% agree with that. However, I don't think rushing to kill him the way Florida did in their justice system was the right call, especially in Oregon, in Idaho, in Washington State, there were still so many other bodies and murders of unsolved victims and kidnappings of unsolved victims that he was the main suspect to. I think you keep them alive so those families can have some sort of closure. And then after all of that is done, fry the son of a bitch. Absolutely. You know, he deserves yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't... I, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think you can offer him anything to provide the closure to these families, but I think that there really wasn't any reason why he couldn't have been extradited and put on trial. And, you know, whether... I'm sure maybe a couple of them, he would have been found not guilty... But uh, there, there really was no reason that he couldn't have faced, you know, faced a court on, on all those other charges, all those I, other victims. I don't even think you have to. At least get the charge in there that he is your number one suspect, right? If he dies, he dies. I have no sympathy for him. You know, but John on hashtag Spaced Out Radio on Twitter says, Rushing, they had him for 11 years. Yes, but he wasn't talking every day, and there was always clues coming in. It does take time. I don't care if it took 25 years. If those families needed 25 years in order to to get some sort of closure for themselves, you'd want it. And unless you have been put in that position, which I have not, I have come close to gang, or not gang violence, but gun violence. My sister was shot and her friend was killed back in 19... 19- 84 and my sister's hand was very badly mangled she lost a finger over it and i'll tell you i have no sympathy for for something along those lines but but he was giving information he was giving information up until the day before his execution you know well that is an interesting point in that they had him for 11 years these different jurisdictions had to at least suspect or know that he was going to be or was their main suspect in 
some of these killings, you would think that over that 11 years, they would have filed charges themselves and, you know, whether they ordered, you know, tried to order an extradition or you can charge, you can uh, charge somebody and have a trial without them there. John brings up a good point at hashtag Space Out Radio. He says, if Ted Bundy had escaped while you were traveling around with him, how do you feel when he killed again? Absolutely. You're right, John. He could have. He could have done that. He escaped twice from prison. He was planning a third attempt. But the whole point True. The, whole, the whole point is, like Everett just said, they didn't have to extradite him. You know, Let's just get to the facts. And now your star witness is gone. And now there are some young women lying in the mountains of Washington State and Oregon in the deep, dense forests, you know, just lying there. And their families have to wonder forever. That's not fair. Yeah, I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. Exactly, especially when your key number one witness, you fried him on the electric chair in 1989. So now we're going on almost 38 years, 20, 29 years to be exact, okay? 29 years you've been living without answers. Parents have died and all they've wanted was closure. Grandparents, maybe siblings have passed away, Right? And and you can argue what it costs to house somebody in prison, but you have to also argue what are those answers worth in terms of the family and just in terms of justice in general. I mean that has to that has to be worth something. I, I couldn't imagine spending a third of my life wondering about something as horrible as that. Exactly. And I would be willing I would be willing to pay through the nose to have those answers if I had to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm fully in agreement with that. Right? Chris brings up a good point in the Spreaker chat room. He says, some of these non-capital punishment states will not extradite if public sentiment says execute the person. That is a problem. That is true. But it's a tough point to argue, and it's a tough point to defend. The death penalty is so polarizing, and both sides make very good arguments, make very good points. What I always come back to is the finality of it all, and the and again, I come from a state where, for a while, it seemed we just put everybody on death row for fun. Um, what if you're wrong? Well, that opens up a whole Pandora's box on there. It does open up an entire and, and Pandora's I, box. Let's get to Gail's question here and before I, you or finish up. Finish up. I was just going to say, that doesn't mean I'm against the death penalty. I just think that there has to be 
a a huge amount. The burden of proof for for a a death penalty case has to be extremely high. Gail's question is: Don't you think it's possible public relations played a big part in Florida's behavior? I think Gosh, it, I don't know how to answer that. Could they have been trying to race Texas? Because Texas and Florida, they like the electric chair around there, don't they? Yeah, Texas kind of—they're—they're they're pretty active. But uh, so was Arkansas the last week too. So it's—I—I I don't know how to answer that in terms of public relations. I—I I think you know closure for families is better public relations than an execution i agree but on the flip side i think what florida wanted to do with him getting to gail's question is is let's just get rid of the problem okay let's just get rid of the problem we know he's convicted he's convicted here let's just get him out of here so that way there's no more escape chats there's no more you know issues with with anything else he's never getting out of here alive let's just rock this joint let's light it up let's and and that's exactly what they did you know i can agree with that i guess i i hope I would like to think that uh, cooperation between jurisdictions has improved since then. I'd like to think that uh, the governments would look at the family situations a little bit more today, but maybe I'm wrong. It's a tough situation indeed, and I still would like to, you know, like I said, Canada hasn't had the death penalty since, I believe, the 1960s or 70s. I should actually Google what my own country does. But Yeah, and then there's the, there's the debate, too, though, that does the death penalty deter crime? Not that we want to get into that, but mm -hmm. does it? Right. On July 14, 1976, Bill C-84 was passed by a narrow margin of a vote of 130 to 124 in a free vote resulting in de jure abolition of the death penalty except for certain offenses under the National Defense Act. In other words, treason. These were removed in 1998. Nobody has been fried in Canada in 41 years or longer. The last prisoners to be executed were in 1962, Ronald Turpin and Arthur Lucas. So, I've never grown up with it. I was three when that happened. You know? But like I said... Yeah, I don't... There are certain criminals that I feel absolutely need to be taken care of. Right? And, and I agree. I just, I, I think that the burden, burden of proof has to be pretty high and you have to be 100% sure 
that. Well, well, and, and I agree with you. But if you get some of these perverts out there, okay, who have been convicted of dozens, dozens of of pedophilia charges, child porn all over. Okay, I don't care if it's dozens or even one. You rape a kid, I'm sorry. You know, let, let's just take the bullet, go get it done, clean the mess up, and oops, you know, sorry, I slipped on the trigger. It was a wet floor. Okay, I'm okay with that. People who murder in multiple standings, okay, people like, you know, I mean, let's face it. I mean, recently in the U.S., there was big hubbub over Aaron Hernandez, whether or not he should have got the death penalty for killing Odin Lloyd. And then, I mean, he was just found not guilty of the double murder. But if he would have been charged and convicted of that double homicide, does he qualify for it now? I don't know. Does Massachusetts have the death penalty? At what point do you put the death penalty on the table? Didn't Aaron Hernandez just commit suicide? He did. He did. But, I mean, there's a sad story behind that, too. I mean, if you read the story on that, he committed suicide because if you commit suicide in jail, your charges are dropped. And with his charges dropped, he's still entitled, or his family and his widow now, his fiance and his daughter, were entitled to an $8 million NFL contract bonus. Interesting. Yeah. That I didn't know. Go figure on that one. Let me pull that one up. You know, and I'm going to get some hate mail on this one, but when you talk about pedophilia and certain criminals, what happens when the crime is committed by somebody with a mental defect? What What is pedophilia to somebody who has the intelligence or the intellect or the the uh the age of a 12 year old mm-hmm. when they're 35 what where do you draw the line between i agree mental incapa- incapacity and you know being responsible for your your actions I agree with you. I agree with you on that. There was a there was a situation a few years ago in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where a gentleman uh I'm just trying to pull up his name, a Chinese gentleman had a psychotic episode where he was riding on a Greyhound bus and he literally chop the head off the guy who was sitting beside him. Okay. I'm going to get this story. Uh, okay. Ew. Here, yes, literally. Okay. So basically, this gentleman is now walking free. The federal opposition leader and the mother of a man who was beheaded and cannibalized on a Greyhound bus are criticizing a decision to grant complete freedom to the man who committed this gruesome act. William Baker, formerly known as Vince Lee, is the man who did it. He had a schizophrenic episode that caused him to go absolutely haywire. He literally cut the head off an innocent guy's head or body who he was... 
he was uh, sleeping at the time. You know, that's the type of guy, okay, where what do you do with him? What do you do with him? It was a psychotic episode, but he should, you know, that's 25 to life, man. That's 25 to life. You know? I mean, it's yeah, easy that, It's easy to a... play judge on this side, okay? It's easy to play judge on this side, but... Yeah, that's a tough call. That I, I certainly don't think he should ever walk free. I agree with you. But... Ever, Every Canadian but I agrees. I don't know with that you. the death penalty. I, I don't know that the death penalty would be appropriate in that case. I don't think the death penalty I mean, would go there. But what do you do? And this is why you and I are not judges and lawyers, because these are the tough decisions. These are the tough arguments that the world has to make. And and I don't think that I would want to be in the position of having to make these arguments. Mm-hmm. I agree. So here's the story from the New York Post on April 20th on Aaron Hernandez. Now that Aaron Hernandez, and I'll read it verbatim here, now that Aaron Hernandez may have his conviction posthumously vacated under an obscure Massachusetts legal doctrine, the New England Patriots Patriots, could owe him money, and they could be contractually obligated to pay Hernandez's estate a $3.5 million bonus that stopped hours after his murder arrest in 2013. The Patriots may also owe Hernandez an additional $2.5 million in guaranteed base salary that was also halted after his arrest. So his death gets his daughter, who's like four years old, and it's not her fault, okay, $6 million bucks. Why why is she still entitled to that though shouldn't that have been shouldn't those bonuses or those amounts been negated after his first conviction Yes but due to the fact that a dead man cannot have a criminal record apparently in Massachusetts okay they were able to use a faint very hidden law to get his conviction posthumously vacated so that way he would be entitled to his money that was signed under contract. That's, that sounds like there's going to be a long court case on that because most NFL contracts, most pro sports contracts, and I'm sure you know this, have a morals or code of conduct clause where if the, the person does something that's, whether it be heinous or inappropriate or something that the team finds so outrageous or egregious that they don't want to have that person on their team anymore, they can cut their contract and and cut them loose. And I would think that being convicted of murder would um, pretty much guarantee that that clause gets invoked. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I would agree with you, and that's what the Patriots did. That's why they released him, right? But now you, you can't look at that crime. In Massachusetts, once again, a dead man can't carry a criminal record into heaven or hell or wherever he's going. I don't understand that. So every every criminal, whether they are executed, murdered, or die of natural causes, has their convictions overturned well, when they die or once they're dead? I don't know how it works. I'm the Canadian here, man. I'm the token Canadian around here. All I know is it's been all over the media in regards to this clause. Right, I'm going to have to read up on that. I don't know how I missed that, but boy, that just seems that seems like one of those archaic laws that uh, just doesn't make any sense anymore. Mm-hmm. It really does. But I mean, the flip side—that six million bucks—is definitely going to be eaten up in lawyers' fees, court costs, everything like that. True, true. You know, but, I mean, here's the flip side. I really have no problem with him getting that money. He's dead. I'd like to see some of that go to his victims. But I think of his four-year-old daughter, right? Yeah, I can understand that. But at the same time... should a, uh, granted, he is a criminal in a unique position. Most criminals don't have multi-million dollar pro sports contracts. Well, I understand um, this. So is that the four-year-old's fault? No, but should, ultimately, I mean, it, it, he committed suicide. Let's assume it was so that his daughter would benefit. I don't know that that's fair. If if anybody commits a crime so that somebody else can benefit or, or, or anybody does something so that a family member can benefit, it doesn't seem like they should be allowed to benefit. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just, that the, as much as I feel sorry for his family and his victim's family or his victim's families, I just don't, I don't think that he should... Uh, or his family should be allowed to profit from that. And there's more hate mail. Well, you, your your six followers on Facebook are going to give it to you now, right? Yeah, but, well, that's okay. But here, here, the law is called, it's a legal principle called abatement ab initio, okay? And it's broken down like this. Abatement ab initio means from the beginning. Then a lawyer says it means that upon a person's death, if they have not exhausted their legal appeals, their case reverts to its status at the beginning. It's as if the trial and conviction never happened. Wow, that seems um, preposterous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because... here in the states, I mean, we have several levels of appeal, and you can just keep moving up 
to the point where the Supreme Court can agree to hear your case. Now, generally, they, they certainly don't hear every case, and not every case moves up that far. But you could argue then that his appeals were on the way up to the Supreme Court, and that just doesn't seem like it's, it's fair, that it's right. True in that, but once again, you can't blame... I, I agree, it's not a very good law. But on the flip side, you know, I hope his daughter is taken care of. And that's the most important part of this because, you know, for as dirty and as filthy of a human being as we're led to believe that he is, much like Ted Bundy, in a different sort of way, you know, he was an evil man. But to his four-year-old daughter, that's still daddy. Right, that's still that. See, I, I guess I would, as much as I, I mean, I, I don't want anybody to commit suicide, but I guess as much as I, I, I hoped that if he, you know, when he had done it, it was because of the guilt, the remorse, the idea of having to live with this for the rest of his life. I hope it wasn't just another manipulation to have his family profit. Absolutely it was. Absolutely. He just got off a conviction. I mean, this is a guy who just got off a, <laughs> off a possible conviction of a double murder. He had no reason to commit suicide, especially with his next case going into appeal. Right? So let me ask you a, let me ask you a question, since you're the the sports reporter in a previous life. Um, do you think that this was put in his ear by his, you know, every, every sports figure, every entertainment figure, they all have lawyers that are either, they specialize just in the, that field. Do you think this was something that was put into his ear by maybe one of his attorneys on the on the sports business end? Could have been. Could have been. Maybe he saw the financial suffering of his fiance and his four-year-old daughter and didn't want to see that happen. You know, was he a fond, studious person of the law? I doubt it. Could a lawyer said, well, you know, your contracts would be such and such. Do you really want to live in prison your entire life when you can give 6 or $8 million back to your family after every, everything you've just put them through? Right? And his kind of scary. And his prison life wasn't getting any better. He, he was a member of the Bloods, I believe. He joined this uh, one of the prison gangs, the Bloods. Okay, had a big Bloods tattoo on his neck. He was found with spice in his system, which is a synthetic marijuana. Okay, he was fighting a lot. He wasn't he wasn't a very good person in jail, if you know what we're saying. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's such a screwy case. I mean, it's very, 
it's very to the point, but it's also very screwy. I mean, he had everything. He had no reason to go down the path that he did. And I mean, just look at what, what happened, how many lives were wrecked, destroyed, taken uh, just for whatever reason. I'm not even sure, honestly, how it all evolved. I mean, when you look at the things, it seems like it was just uh, just a, a mess. I mean, everything he could have done wrong, he did. Absolutely. And AM in the Revolution Radio chat room brings up a good point. Families, these families are victims too. And that's exactly right. The families are victims, right? The families are they victims. Are. They are. And that's an issue. So, like I said, if the, young, if the little young lady, who is probably a gorgeous, good young girl, not understanding the world, isn't going to really figure this out for hopefully a long, long time, if she's able to be comforted by $6 million, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that law. You know, it's not bringing Odin Lloyd back just because his Aaron Hernandez's convictions are wiped out. He was convicted. So to all of a sudden bring up, well, you know, he doesn't die a, a convicted man. He dies an innocent man. Yeah, okay, fine. What are you going to do, sue a four-year-old girl for money? Come on. You know what? If you're the family of Odin Lloyd, maybe you do. Maybe, maybe, maybe you do because you know, there are, I don't know what the laws are in Massachusetts, but there are laws around the U S where a criminal and a criminal's family cannot profit from anything resulting from the case. So if he was convicted of Odin Lloyd's murder and then he profited through going to jail committing suicide, and now his family gets $8 million or $6 million, um, maybe there's a case to be made there. It's not profiting, though, because in the books, he goes down as an innocent man. Right? That's the issue. That's the issue a lot of people sometimes, have, my friend. Sometimes every base is covered, isn't it? It is very true. I think the one thing we can agree on, because this was kind of a heated topic tonight, but the one thing we can agree on, sometimes it's the victims who never have the final say. And we learned about that tonight in a couple of different instances. Everett, thank you for joining me in the final hour. I got Mr. Bumblefoot playing. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell us about the encounter online before you run. Ah, well, we're growing. We're moving forward. Um, we have some great new articles. Eric Markham has a couple of new articles up. We got one from Preston Dennett on UFOs and UFO sightings of these massive fleets. He goes through and does some case studies on some different uh, incidences of these huge fleets of UFOs. That should be up in the next couple days, and we have a whole bunch more rolling in. The Encounter Online found on Space Out Radio on our website, spaceoutradio.com. And we're going to be doing a lot more encounter work 
here as time goes on. In the next few months, maybe weeks, we're going to do a little bit of a shift on the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to hear a lot more news on this show. Homemade, right, Ever? Yeah. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of new and interesting ideas, topics, points of view. It, it, it grows every day. It, it's morphed. It's changed. It just keeps on getting better, and mm-hmm. we're just going to start rolling it out as we, as we get it together. Absolutely. And you know what? We're also probably going to be bringing the thought of the Dave to Spaced Out Radio nightly. So if you're on Facebook and you follow me, I do the thought of the Dave there every night. Everett, you hold on. Mr. Bumblefoot is playing in the background. That means it's time for us to prepare to get out of here. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. He brings us in and he takes us home every single night. Tomorrow night on the program, Donald R. Young, Strange Outdoors. We get into the cryptid world starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time right here at SpacedOutRadio.com. We want to thank our terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99 Rock the Key in Noonan, Georgia, and 107.7 FM, the United Public Radio Network. Good to have you with us. And Mr. Bumblefoot is going to take us home. Remember, Space Out Radio friends, tell a friend. Be like Dennis Koch. Spread it all over Facebook, Twitter, wherever on social media. Get the word out. We own the night.